I love Brian Noonan. He's uh, super funny, and uh, he's just got tons of energy, and he's just a terrific guy. So listen to Brian on Sunday nights because uh, he does a really good show. I'm better looking. I have better hair. I'm deceivingly smart. And I want everyone else to do what I say. Holy s***! Brian's back! Afternoon. Welcome. Glad you're with me, Brian Noonan on 720 WGN. It's a, a Sunday afternoon, and yes, we're back for the next uh, few Sundays. There's no sports, so we get to hang out very nicely done. Big show planned. Always more fun when you're involved. 312-981-7200. That's the number. When you call in, you'll be talking to Ariel. Yes, Ariel is here because Cody's work ethic is lax at best. He's coming back from Las Vegas. He was at the Consumer Electronics Show. So the same rules apply. Be nice to Ariel, and that's how you get to me. Easy enough. Uh, as I mentioned, that's the uh, phone, that's the text. Also, if you want to stay in touch via social media, it's Brian Noonan Show on Facebook and Twitter. We're going to talk to Michelle Nichols from the Adler Planetarium uh, right after the 3.30 news. As I mentioned with Pete and Jane, it is the year of the moon. A lot of new things happening at the Adler, and we have to get ready for the big lunar eclipse that is coming up uh, January 20th. So it's a uh, lot going on. We will learn all about that. And then... The science behind our relationship with food. That is the subject that is covered in the book, Why You Eat What You Eat. The author, Rachel Hers, will join me after 4 o'clock. A lot of interesting stuff in this book and uh, a lot of interesting things to share with you. So I hope uh, I hope you'll be here for that. And then I can't wait to uh, talk to these guys again. I introduced uh, you to these guys back in the summer when I was uh, in for Nick. They are the uh, filmmakers behind F Your Hair. It is a documentary that will be screened at the uh, Gene Siskel Film Center coming up in a couple weeks. And it is about Five Rabbits Cerveceria, which is in uh, down in Bedford Park. If you've, uh, if you've never had Five Rabbit beer, you're missing out. It's uh, delicious stuff. But they got into a little controversy with the president, then the candidate, Donald Trump. And uh, this is the story of the beer and the uh, the brewery, and how this little brewery kind of came to be associated with, quote-unquote, the resistance. So it's a, it's a very interesting story. I talked to these guys again when they were still just trying to get the movie finished, and now it's done, and it is going to screen at the Gene Siskel Film Center. So a lot to talk, lot, lot to talk about. Plus, Ariel took the train, which is a, just a, an anomaly to me. I, I can't can't imagine. You know, I don't know if you know this, Ariel. You're um, new to the program. We've had the pleasure of working together before, but I don't know if you know my aversion to public transportation. I did not know. I that. am not a fan of public. Tra- I, I mean, I'm a fan of it in general. I know we need it. I'm happy that people have it. People who uh, don't have a car and need to avail themselves of public transportation. I'm a big proponent of a good public transportation system. I personally eschew it at every chance, every Did, chance I ha- get. Have you had an opportunity to utilize it for a number of years to, you know, to come up with that conclusion? I have. Uh, back when I was in high school and uh, younger, I used to take uh, both the, uh, well, now it's the Metro. It used to be the Illinois Central, the IC, as we like to call it. I took that. I took uh, CTA buses. I've taken the uh, the L many, many times. I've 
I will say I've taken public transportation in foreign countries and found it quite pleasant. Oh. Um, but I've taken the New York City subway system recently and uh, did not enjoy it at all. So I, this is not just, this isn't me sitting in my ivory tower going, right. you know what, I don't want to mingle with the common folk. <laughs> I'm not going out on public transportation. That's ridiculous. There, there's absolutely no reason for me to hobnob with the unwashed. Uh, this is from years of uh, years of hobnobbing with the unwashed, being unwashed myself. So this is great because I actually happen to love the the, Do you the train and the bus, uh, and and I can't stand Ubers and 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 car service. I'm not a see. Oh, I don't. I, I I'll use those. I do not enjoy them. I like to drive myself ah, because okay. I'm a control freak and I'm a lunatic, and I like to make sure that I listen. I know best. I know where I'm going. <laughs> I know how fast to get there. Nobody drives as fast as I want them to, uh, or you know. And thankfully, I well. Thankfully for the state coffers, I drive faster than I'm probably legally uh, allowed to. But either way, that's here nor there. It was a uh, so you took now. There was a sad story on your trip, but um, the reason I brought up the reason I brought up public transportation. I don't know if anybody knows this. There uh, today is the uh, annual uh, take your pants off and ride the CTA, which is another reason I don't want to ride. <laughs> another reason I don't want to see, ride the CTA. It's the annual no pants ride. It probably it just finished uh, probably about an hour ago, so if you've put your pants back on and are able to fish your phone out of your pocket, and you were part of this or experienced this while you were on the red line, please by all means three one two nine eight one seven two hundred, because I've never, I've never understood this. Here's the deal: it was uh, it was organized originally as part of a uh, an improv thing in New York City. Because we all all good things come out of New York City, according to people from New York City. So it was uh, Improv Everywhere decided they were going to do this first no-pants ride. And uh, then it spread to other cities, as you can imagine. This is actually year eight for the Chicago edition of the no-pants ride. Uh, it was organized by a man named uh, Steve Preston. And what, what people do is they get on the red line, and they ride with their pants on until they're about to get off at a stop. Then they take their pants off and they get off. And then people who've gotten off uh, er, before them with no pants then get on. And it's just a continuous loop of people not wearing pants. Why? I don't know. Other than it's, I guess, perceived as fun. It's a little chilly out there today. I'm not. uh, And they say, weirdly enough, the colder it is, the more participants they have. Over the years in these no-pants rides, there were 160 last year. They were hoping to hit 200 this year. So I don't know. Uh, I uh, Listen, I, I reserve my no-pantsness for, you know, people that I know. It's not, uh, it's not something that I'm uh, going to parade around. So it goes, uh, it gets on the red line. They go south to Roosevelt. Then participants hang out and wait for trailing riders to finish. Uh, then everyone heads back north toward Howard Street, and then they go to Five Guys and have a burger. This is the this is the big plan. So you've uh, you've been riding out. You get on the train, as I said, with your pants on. Then as you approach your respective stop, you disrobe, um, take your pants off. Then they get off the train without their pants. Riders then board the following train, which will have some trailing pantsless riders getting off. So it's, uh, you know, you just keep doing this and doing this. And uh, there is security. They have, they talk to, they clear this with the CTA, and they claim the CTA is fine with this. And having seen behavior on the CTA, I'm sure a couple people riding without their pants is the least of the CTA's worries. The horrors that ensue on the cars, uh, in, on the L, you know, 
I'm sure they're like, hey, you know, you want to ride a couple stops without pants? Yeah, that's okay. They talk to the police department. The police department's on board. They have two plainclothes officers that act as security, and uh, they're in constant radio contact. So there you go. Because this is a quote. Uh, One year, we got somebody who ended up lunaticky and tried to be touchy-feely, and he got arrested. We don't play games with this. So if you, but now again, it's after three. So this was supposed to end at two. If you're out and you see somebody riding the L without pants, don't think at this point they're part of this ride. Now they're just using it to be a little bit, uh, a little bit perverted. So after two o'clock, everybody should have their pants on. Again, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Uh, last week, if you remember, Cody Parkey uh, double doinked. Missed the field goal that would have uh, catapulted the Bears into the second round of the playoffs. Yesterday, Goose Island tried to teach Chicago a lesson. Did that lesson get learned? We'll find out on the other side. Brian Inner, WGN. Get Real in the Morning, Larry Potash, Robin Baumgartner, Paul Conrad, and the entire WGN-TV Morning News team. Weekdays, 4 to 10. All right. Last week, Cody Parkey. Uh, Well, listen, if you're a layman fan, you say he choked because he only had one job to do, and it was to make that 43-yard field goal and uh, send the Bears to uh, Los Angeles for the uh, playoffs. That was his one job, and every fan of the Bears went crazy. They lost their mind, and then they said, oh, you know what, Uh, the next day, maybe it was tipped. It was tipped a little bit. It was still a horrible, horrible kick, just just bad. Making it worse was that he drilled the one when they when they iced him when they called timeout. Uh, oh man! Anyway, all right, we can't we can't live in the past. We got to move on, don't we? Sure, we do. But our friends at Goose Island decided. You know what? We're tired of hearing everybody complaining that Cody Parkey missed this. Like like they could do it because everybody's like, I could have hit it from there. No, can you? Can you make a forty three yard field goal? Really? Okay. Let's find out. So you probably heard about this uh, earlier in the week. They had announced uh, Goose Island was going to give you a year's supply of beer. Beer for a year if you could make this 43-yard field goal. Only one problem with that promotion, uh, you can't give away beer. It's illegal. Uh, doesn't you, you can't do it. So Goose Island, being the quick-thinking brewery that they are, they said, all right, we're, we're going to come up with a different prize. How about that? What do you think? Uh, well, what they thought of was they uh, decided they were going to Anybody who could make this 43-yard field goal, they were going to give airfare, hotel, and tickets to any regular season NFL game next season. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good prize right there. All right, and if any contestant had made the attempt, uh, they would have the chance to break the NFL record with a 65-year, uh, 65-yard try, and that was going to get them, I believe, Super Bowl tickets. So, a lot on the line for Goose Island, but great publicity. So they they decided to do it. Well. <laughs> All right. So 100 people come out yesterday. They line up for hours and hours and hours. They're going to try this. 100 people came out to try this. Now, granted, uh, you could say, well, listen, uh, the elements were not in favor of these amateur kickers. And that would be true. But you know what? The elements aren't always 
in favor of the professional kickers either. So these are 100 people lined up. And uh, as you can imagine, not a lot of success was had by these amateur kickers. Zero for 100. 100 people try, 100 people failed. And if you've seen any of the video, a good number of those people fell flat on their backs because it was a little slick and they were wearing, you know, gym shoes. And it looked like there was some AstroTurf there. So you had to kick. Now, granted, you've got, you know, I don't know how many yards up in front. There was a chain link fence and there were spectators behind that. So directly in front of you. And then the uprights were there. But if you're a kicker, your kick is going to go higher than these than the chain link fence, hopefully, and higher than the spectators, and then sail right through the uprights. I guess one guy came close, but uh, most of them did not. And it was see, this is why I love this because you know we think, oh man, oh it's, now somebody's complaining. Make it the same conditions. It wasn't on the street. They were kicking off artificial turf, which is the same. You know, a lot of kickers kick off artificial turf. Um, and I don't care how much you say, oh, you know what? I used to kick in high school. I was pretty good. Pretty good, pretty good kicker back in high school. So I'm gonna I'm sure I could go out there and drill a 43 yarder. This is not letting Cody Parkey off the hook, by by the way. Because none of those hundred people, none of those hundred people are being paid to be a kicker. None of those hundred people who went out yesterday, and God bless them. They, you know, you want to go out and try something. There were a couple celebrities there that tried it. Uh, the celebrities didn't make it either. So that's, you know, if you want to go out and try, that's fine. If you think it, it'd be funny, you know, I, I was thinking, well, I, you know, how strong do you have to be? I don't know. Obviously stronger than these hundred people. There's, there's got, there's a secret to this. That's why there's only, you know, so many professional kickers. This is not something that anybody can, that's why they can't just go out. Like the bears can't go out and walk down Michigan Avenue today and go, hey, you look like a uh, well-built young man. Come and be our kicker, because anybody can kick. No, they can't. Anybody can't kick. Um, So none of them had the distance or the accuracy to put the ball over the chain-link fence through the goalpost. As I said, some came close. More than than one just came close. Uh, So Goose Island, since nobody won, Goose Island has announced plans to donate $20,000 $20,000 to Lurie Children's Hospital, which uh, company officials said is Parkey's charity of choice. The competition, as I mentioned, had some celebrities, um, and, and people are doing it for, for different reasons. Uh, one guy said he, uh, he was uh, the first in line. He just wanted to do it. They just practiced. They had, uh, they had kicked. They just thought it would be fun, which I get, you know, okay. You want to stand out in the snow and uh, freezing temperatures to try to kick a ball? Okay. Um one guy took off work. He works for the Big Ten Network. He took the day off. That's a little. Uh, that's that's a little crazy. Now, he used to kick for Nebraska, and he kicked forty-five and fifty yarders, according to this. So he says he had the leg to do it, but um, he could not pull the trigger on it yesterday. Another guy said uh, he was so disappointed emotionally. Uh, <laughs> That he decided, he decided. Well, I have to go and kind of purge, purge my anger, purge my pain, and go out and try this. And another guy said um, he just uh, he had his mood again was affected, so he just uh, another he had to do it. 
Just had to do it. I tell you what, I was in the uh, I was in the conference room last week with uh, Hamp and Ob and Carmen when the game ended, and uh, to say to say now most fans, most of us were very disappointed. Uh, take our disappointment and multiply it by about six thousand, and that was I was t- I was afraid to to stay in that room. Quite frankly, it was. Um, I don't want to say I don't want to say that uh, you know. They were uh, on the verge of violence, so I won't. Let's just say, I think if Cody Parkey had wandered into the WGN uh, facilities, Hamp might, Hamp might have kicked him 43 yards. It was it was uh, that bad. Uh, <laughs> so, absolutely no, uh, no sympathy for Cody, and the fact that he went on the Today Show was uh, repugnant, but, you know, that's all done. And uh, now we move on, and we look to next year with our new defensive coordinator, and uh, everything will be golden for the Bears next year. It's going to be a long January and February here in Chicago, though. All right, let's do this, and then we'll find out all about the year of the moon and what the Adler has in store. We'll do that on the other side. It's WGN. Timeless, memorable music is back on the radio at 87.7 FM. Great artists. Great songs. Great memories. Right now on 87.7 FM. The music you've been missing is on 87.7 FM. Me TV FM. On the other side of the news, Michelle Nichols, the Director of Public Observing for the Adler Planetarium, will join us. There is a lot going on. A big lunar eclipse is coming the 20th. We'll talk about that. The newest exhibit at the Adler and... What's coming up at the Adler for the Year of the Moon? All of that on the other side of the news. It's 3.30 on 720 WGN. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Uh, I'll just let Frank sing for a while. No, words, that's not that's irresponsible because we have a lot of things to talk about because it is the year of the moon. Michelle Nichols is the director for public observing at the Adler Planetarium here in Chicago. She joins us now. A lot going on. Michelle, thanks for taking some time. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you guys too. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, well, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. First of all, uh, let's talk about this lunar eclipse that is coming up on January 20th. It's a super blood wolf moon eclipse, which sounds uh, fascinating and terrifying all at the same time. <laughs> well, I will. I will agree that it is fascinating, but you can. We can. We can not worry about the terrifying part. Okay. So. I just. I love that. So why? Why this name for a lunar eclipse? Sure. So. A lunar eclipse happens when the moon passes through the shadow cast by the Earth into space. So the sun shines on the Earth, the Earth casts a shadow, occasionally the moon goes through that shadow, we see the moon turn gray or sort of a brick red color or something like that. And so the name that has sort of cropped up in the last few years is calling it a blood moon. It's just sort of a colloquial sort of term. Um, And supermoon refers to the fact that the moon is... um, near its closest point to Earth in its in that particular orbit. Um, so 
if you had another moon to compare it to in the sky, it <laughs> might look slightly bigger, but I would be okay if anybody walked outside and went, I don't notice any difference in size, um, but that's okay. And then the wolf moon refers to um, the fact that a lot of the full moons during the year, names have come down through the ages, and one of them for the January moon is wolf moon. I think okay. people like that one just because it sounds really cool. It does sound really cool. Uh, now, is... I'll be honest. I, I, the last supermoon I looked, and I, like you said, I'm one of those people. I went out and I went, okay, I may, maybe it looks bigger. I don't know. Uh, but supermoon seems to be a term that maybe in the astronomy world, you guys have been using it for a long time. It just seems to have creeped into the public consciousness over the last couple of years. Am, am I off on that? No, you're not off at all. And actually, in the astronomy community, we really don't use it all that much either. Um, Very nice. Yeah, it's just one of those things to kind of get people, um, uh, if if their interest is piqued by that, maybe they might want to go outside and take a look uh, at the moon. But honestly, truly, if you don't notice a change in size, it's okay. Because when I walk outside and I look at one of those, I don't really notice the difference either. (laughs) And you've been looking at this stuff for a while. You're not not new to this. This So if you don't don't see it i'm not going to feel bad that i don't see it no nope, not at all not at all now i've been doing this for most of my life <laughs> so now about how long uh, does it take because i remember one of the last lunar eclipses i went outside and i sat for i don't know sat for an hour or so and i could i could see it happening what's the duration of a lunar eclipse um, in this particular case, it's a it's a pretty good duration for a lunar eclipse. It could just be a few minutes. We've actually had that in the past, but um, this particular case, the moon is going to pass through a significant portion of the Earth's shadow. So the partial eclipse is when the moon starts to pass through the darker part of the Earth's shadow. is going to start at um, 9.33 p.m. on Sunday, okay. and Sunday evening. And then totality will start when the moon is fully within the Earth's shadow, uh, right around a little after 10.40 p.m. It'll end, totality will end at a little after 11.40 p.m. So it'll be about an hour within that totality area. And then the full uh, partial, sorry, the partial eclipse, the full eclipse will be over um, a little before 1 o'clock in the morning on the 21st. Okay, so everybody should set your alarm and go out because it is for lack of a more scientific term it's really cool to see yeah exactly you don't need any special equipment to see a lunar eclipse you don't need a telescope you don't need binoculars although if you have them get them out uh, put them outside of maybe 20 minutes half an hour before you want to go outside because that'll allow that equipment to acclimate to the cold um, and the dry air so put that stuff outside but if you don't have it it's totally okay all you need is your eyeballs and then go outside and face to the southeast and look up that's all you need to do and if it's clear out we will see the whole thing from beginning to end and the other great thing is next monday a week from tomorrow is martin luther king jr day yes. so if you have the day off you don't even really need to you can stay up a little later i, I give you permission to do that yeah there's no reason no reason to go oh, i can't get up at 10 40 to see the lunar eclipse right. now <laughs> right. As, or right before you go to bed go outside look up see if you can see the eclipse somebody texted in and this is a question uh michelle that maybe you can answer does the distance from the Earth affect the darkness of a lunar eclipse. So does the shadow get darker depending on where the Earth and the Moon are in their orbit? 
No, but what does affect that color, um, that darkness, um, sometimes the moon can appear brick red, sometimes it can be gray. It'll, uh, when the sunlight is shining onto the Earth, some of that sunlight, of course, passes through the Earth's atmosphere. And that light, or the, uh, that atmosphere is going to scatter out the blue light from the sun, mm-hmm. leaving that red light that, that we actually see. You can kind of see this effect at sunset or sunrise here on the surface of the Earth. So for a lunar eclipse, you are simultaneously seeing the collected sunrises and sunsets at that particular moment around the Earth all at the same time, which is really cool to think about. But um, what will affect that color is how cloudy that air is at that particular time, how dusty it might be, if there's smoke in the air. So we actually really don't quite know what color we're going to get until we get it. And then the other thing that will affect what you see is your eyeball do not react to red light as well as it is uh, as it reacts to blue light or green light um, and so if you look up at a lunar eclipse and it doesn't look as red as you might see in the pictures okay just because your camera might be picking up that red light a little better than your ah. eyes are so if you're not seeing that red color really vividly it's okay um, it's just how our eyes are constructed oh there you go look at we're learning about optometry as well exactly very, you get all sorts of things at the Adler planetarium well and <laughs> As, as people would imagine, uh, Lunapalooza next Sunday is going to be a huge event at Adler. What's what's going on in association with this uh, lunar eclipse? So we're going to party with the moon no matter if we can nice. see it or not. So if you want to come down to the Adler um, and uh, the event goes from 8 p.m. to midnight, uh, we're going to be showing hopefully the lunar eclipse in person. Um, we'll have telescopes outside, so if it's if it's clear out, get up to one of those if you want to take a look. But actually, you just show up and look up with your eyes. Um, but the uh, event will feature activities. We will have our brand new Imagine the Moon planetarium show that opens on Friday, but it will be featured during our Lunapalooza event on Sunday night. Um, it's just going to be a whole lot of fun. And uh, so for one ticket price, you get all of that. So the best thing to do? Go to the Adler Planetarium's website, www.adlerplanetarium.org, and get your tickets today. We we could sell out, so if you're kind of okay. on the fence, um, get your tickets sooner rather than later. Well, and I know we've talked before, and these events, people kind of wait, and they're like, well, I don't know. And as you said, things sell out. Um, tell us about, you know, we're going to talk about the Imagine the Moon, the new exhibit which is opening, but let's uh, let's talk a, a couple other things about what's happening at Lunapalooza. What is the, the Eclipse HQ in the Space Visualization Lab? By some chance, it is not clear in the Chicago area, which, let's be real, it's January. It might not be. Um, We're hopefully going to be showing a live feed uh, from someplace else uh, that someone will be showing a camera feed of the eclipse. Um, We already know of a couple of other places that will be showing the eclipse from their locations. Um, So hopefully we can tag on to one of those. And the reason I'm saying hopefully is it depends on the weather in those places, too. So there are other places that are planning on showing it. Um, so we'll have uh, uh, astronomers there. You can talk to folks. So it's just a great place to hang out and get your uh, eclipse questions answered or your moon questions answered. So it'll be a lot of fun. Even if we're not able to show the eclipse live, um, there'll be a lot of pictures online afterwards. But it's a great place to hang out and learn about the moon. That has to be one of the most frustrating parts of your field, that, that you're, we're always at the 
whims of Mother Nature. A cloud can ruin everything. I remember for the solar, the huge solar eclipse. We were, I was down in Carbondale, and we got to see pretty much all of totality, except one cloud drifted by, and it blocked everybody who was sitting in the stadium. It's like, no, we're so close, and yet one cloud ruined everything. I was in the stadium, too. So, yes, uh, I was there, and what you're describing is, is correct, except for one thing. I want to... I want to kind of spin it in a different way, and it's okay. taken me a really long time to come to this. Um, so I used to get really frustrated with, with the weather possibilities. But think of it this way. We are here on Earth. We are at the whims of Mother Nature. We are connected. The, the view that we get is dependent on what we have around us, and you just have to roll with it in astronomy <laughs> yeah. because you just never know what you're going to get. So that's why I, I want to tell people just keep trying. I mean, you never know if, the, if it is cloudy, but the clouds are maybe puffy, and you might get a glimpse of it yeah. in and amongst the clouds. So who knows? And it's just... It's just something that I've just, you just roll with it. You just take what you get. And if we don't see this one, uh, we'll we'll give it a whirl for the next one. How often now, we know uh, total solar eclipses are, are rare. How how rare or not rare are the lunar eclipses? Um, we get, uh, I would say we, planet Earth, gets yes. one or two lunar eclipses a year-ish okay. on average. Um, so, but the, the Chicago area... Um, I believe our next one, and I would have to look this up. I didn't right before the phone call, but if I get a chance, if we take a little break, I'll look okay. it up. Um, but uh, I believe the next one that we're going to see is 2021, 2022, something like that. But I can look it up and get you the, the date. All right. Well, that, that's a perfect segue. It's almost like you've done this before, Michelle. Michelle Nichols is my guest. She's the Director of Public Observing for the Adler Planetarium. We're talking about Lunapalooza, which is happening next Sunday in advance of the big lunar eclipse. Uh, let's take that break, and you can look up when the next lunar eclipse is and then we're going to talk about the new exhibit imagine the moon and then uh our my intrepid producer ariel has a question about uh i don't know he thinks according to some astronomer thinks aliens are here uh or or have made contact so he'll he'll give you a little heads up (laughs) heads up on that because i don't i don't understand it either michelle but we'll talk to you in just a couple minutes uh michelle nichols is here we will talk more about the lunar eclipse on the other side it is wgn So much space, so little time to explore it all. Michelle Nichols is the Director of Public Observing at the Adler Planetarium. The lunar eclipse is happening next Sunday night into Monday morning. You can go to adlerplanetarium.org to get all the information on Lunapalooza, which is happening. But we also want to talk... Oh, first, Michelle, uh, you want, you said you were going to look up. when If we miss this lunar eclipse, when's the next one that the Chicago area will be able to see? Let's see. Oh, there. Hold on. Sorry, Michelle. There you are. Uh, oh, there we go. Um, so the uh, next one we're going to see in total is Sunday, May fifteenth of twenty twenty two. Oh wow! So yeah, That's if you don't way. see this one, then we have about two and a half more years to see another total lunar eclipse in the Chicago area. Now it doesn't seem like it's been that long since the last one. Am I am I confusing things, or is time just running together for me? Well, no, it's it just happens, just dumb luck or okay. dumb bad luck, I guess you could say that um, we just won't see a few of them. There'll be some partials, okay. um, some partial lunar eclipses um, between now and then, but the next total one where we see it, uh, where we see it actually totality, will be uh, May of twenty twenty two. 
All right. Now you mentioned that Friday, the 18th. Imagine the moon. The new, uh, the new display, the new exhibit at Adler is opening. It'll be available for everybody if they come to Luna Palooza. What is what is Imagine the Moon? Imagine the Moon is our new planetarium show. So it is produced uh, by the Adler Planetarium in-house, um, and it is basically talking about humanity's connection to the moon over the decades and the centuries and the millennia. So it starts off with uh, imagining the moon, people looking up and imagining uh, the moon connecting to it in our everyday lives, um, to the time of telescopes when we started imagining possibly going to the moon and what the moon actually might be like. Then uh, our, our scientific explorations of the moon and leading on to the present day where we still connect to the moon and how we do that um, on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's really different. It's a, it's a different way of, of looking at the moon in a planetarium show, which you would think would be just, here's everything we know about the moon. <laughs> well, we, wanna, we wanted to present it in a different light. Um, sorry, pun not intended. No, that's um, not. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think people will really enjoy it. And this is, again, it's opening on the 18th of January, and then it'll be, how long will it run for the year? Because as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is the year of the moon, right? At right. The Adler? We, yep. We tend to run our shows for quite a while. So if you okay. don't see it next weekend, we've got it. We've got quite a while through um, uh, 2019 for folks to come down and see the show. Very good. And I'm also looking forward to, and I know we don't have a lot of details about it yet, but this summer, uh, the uh, 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, you guys are going to be uh, celebrating that very uh, in a very large way. Correct, correct. So the 50th anniversary of the moon landing is Saturday, July 20th of 2019. So expect the Abbott Planetarium to do something fun for that. So stay tuned to our website. We'll, we'll start releasing details over the next few months. And that, of course, is AdlerPlanetarium.org. Okay, Michelle, before, before we went to break... I told you that my producer Ariel came to me right before right before we went on. And, Listen, I gotta, uh, I can't wait to talk to Michelle because there's something that I read and I want to ask her about it. And I know I, I said mention it to Michelle before she comes on so that she's, you know, not caught off guard. <laughs> so Ariel, because you gave me this giant story like 12 seconds before I went on the air, I was not able to read this. I apologize, Can you boil that. it down and tell us why you think aliens are amongst us? I don't know if it's aliens, but basically, okay. I guess there was an interstellar object called Umawamawa that came by Earth in I think it was the year 2017 and at first they thought it was just a rock that went by and a lot of these things fly by um, but then now I read there was an astronomer from Harvard who says that they actually don't know what it is and in fact they think they can rule out what it it isn't and that it wasn't just a rock and that maybe it was something else something a little bit more mysterious and then i got all excited he got very excited michelle you should have seen him he really shows absolutely no feeling at all toward the show normally and then he thought there was some mysterious object flying through space and the kid was out of his mind hey whatever floats your boat and connects you to astronomy is fine with me so yeah so that object is called Oumuamua and it was determined to be a an object from another solar system this has probably happened before but this is the first one that was definitively identified as coming from not our solar system so it came in it's heading back out um, and so at first the uh, astronomy community thought it was just an asteroid kind of a space rock um, then the after further studies of it it seemed to um, display some characteristics of a comet. 
Okay. So comets tend to, um, when they get closer to the sun, they'll release some gases and then other materials um, that might change the uh, uh, path of the object just a little bit, just that extra little kick um, from the escaping material. There was a Harvard astronomer who um, took that one step further and said, well, if it's not a comet, um, maybe it is a far old um, alien craft of some sort that had uh, what is called a solar sail on it, uh, attached to it. And a solar sail is essentially just this big, imagine a great big piece of of something that would collect light from the sun and that is actually enough pressure to from the sun the actual sunlight is pressure on this material the sail of of some kind that might move that asteroid now he or that um that object he's he's not necessarily saying that it is that he's just saying maybe this is another idea we should look at um the astronomy community is basically saying well without more information it's going to be kind of hard to pin down what it is no matter what <laughs> yeah. um but the cool thing about all this is now that we've seen one of these we're going to look for more of them and okay. so that will give us more than, as we say in astronomy, more more than an N of one. Because <laughs> ah, we yes. currently have one <laughs> object to look at. We want to look for more of these things. And and who knows? It, it's it's something neat to look for in the future. And we can't say for one way or the other that this was an alien craft of some kind. All right. Well, listen. I don't. I don't know. I I do like the gathering more information. That's what scientists do. Not it's not what Ariel does. Not what I do. We hear oh, there's an alien spaceship flying through. We're like, wait a minute. That's all. Uh, does does the astronomy community, when uh, you know, when something like this happens and somebody makes this claim, well, it might be this. Does it, is there a collective eye roll in the community, or are you supportive of others in the astronomy community? Um, I guess it probably depends on who you talk to, but <laughs> it's it's uh, as long as whoever it is is providing credible information, making a making a uh, a theory based on or a hypothesis based right. on actual data and it isn't just well I think it's a dinosaur flying <laughs> past in a in a in a round ball shaped spacecraft well uh, I mean yeah I could come up with that sure. um, but it's um if it's based on the actual data I mean yeah you can keep throwing these ideas out there but until we have more information to start calling out some of these ideas you can keep adding them in all you want um and so this this particular paper did appear in a regular normal astronomy journal it it wasn't just a uh, just something somebody published yeah. as an op-ed in a, in a newspaper so a guy, somewhere so. yeah and harvard's no slouch of a place you know right, this is right, not, exactly know. so well that, yeah. that's exciting and so when you say okay now we're going to look for this is it is it that something like this has passed through before but just didn't get noticed or it was discounted as, you know, oh, like you said, oh, it was probably a comet or a meteor. So now you now the focus just shifts and it's, okay, we're going to really pay attention to this now. No, our, our instrumentation, our telescopes and other instruments are sensitive enough now. We can actually see these things because they're going to be really dim. Okay. And we have um, telescopes that are scanning the skies and more of them coming online in the next few years. That will that will be scanning the skies. For example, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope called LSST is going to be scanning the entire sky over over its location every three days, and so it's going to have just this fire hose of information coming at us, and we'll be able to to see 
more of these things. Not that they weren't there before and and they're just now showing up. It's they were probably always there um, and we just couldn't see every now and then. We just couldn't see them. All right. Well, Michelle, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Don't forget Luna Palooza next Sunday, January twentieth at the Adler Planetarium. Go to adlerplanetarium.org to get all the details on Luna Palooza and on the newest Adler Planetarium show, which is Imagine the Moon. So go and check all those out. We will talk to you again soon, Michelle. It is always a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Uh, Michelle Nichols is the Director of Public Observing. All right, on the other side of the news, we are going to delve into the science behind our relationship with food. We'll do that with Rachel Hers. The Steve Cochran Show celebrates the most valuable person on the planet weekday mornings at 720 on 720 WGN Chicago. Smart speaker users just say play WGN radio on TuneIn. The news is sponsored by Hilton's of Chicago, Dibs.com. It's 4 o'clock. Here's Pam Jones. I got put my banana Dixie cups All flavors and push-ups too I'm your ice cream man Baby, stop me when I'm passing by Brian Noonan on 720 WGN Next hour, we'll talk to the creators, the filmmakers, whose new documentary, F Your Hair, is going to be playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Uh, Ariel is here producing today. He said, listen, I've already gotten a couple uh, calls. People are asking, where's Cody? Did he leave? No, Cody's just... Cody was uh, out of town for business. He's flying back today. He will be back uh, next week. But uh, listen, Ariel is handpicked. Trust me, Ariel is here because he's supposed to be here, and I'm happy to have him. Uh, have you ever been eating and you thought to yourself, I, I don't know why I'm eating this. I don't. Uh, I, I didn't really want to eat it, but something just made me eat. There's a whole science behind why we eat what we eat. Uh, I didn't know anything about it, but now after reading Why You Eat What You Eat by Rachel Hers, I am starting to grasp it just a wee bit. Thankfully, Rachel is here. Uh, she knows a whole lot more about it than I do. Rachel Hers is a neuroscientist. She specializes in perception and emotion, and she is the author, as I said, of Why You Eat What You Eat. Rachel, good to talk to you. Thanks for being here. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this because I found the book fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I'm very happy to be on. So, what is for what is neuro neurogastronomy before because that's basically what the book is based on, correct? Exactly. So, the idea behind neurogastronomy is bringing together the disciplines of psychology, neuroscience, nutrition, social behavior, even understanding what goes on behind the agriculture scenes and the media and marketing scenes of food, and bringing that all together to understand our relationship with food, because it's very complex and a lot of different fields are involved. Now, you had done a lot of work. You had specialized in scent and actually one of your books, The Scent of Desire. What made you move from that? And I'm guessing they're all interconnected. But what made you move from that specialty to, to write this book? Well, um, first of all, our sense of smell is very much involved in our experience of eating. So, for instance, and also my second book is called That's Disgusting. And even though it's about the emotion of disgust, the emotion of disgust is actually a taste-based emotion. So if you want to really? think about smell and taste as being my previous work, and our experience of flavor is all due to our nose. So, for instance, it's not the saltiness of the bacon that we crave. It's the aroma plus that saltiness that's so amazing. And so given my background in the 
the two senses I think that are most involved in our experience of eating, as well as my background in emotion and motivated behavior and my love of food myself, <laughs> I figured this was the way to go. Well, we're going to delve into the to the sense of smell later because one of the chapters deals with a gentleman who lost his sense of smell, and I've I've never had a sense of smell, so that chapter oh. hit, hit close to home. So we're going to delve into that uh, a little bit more. But just in general, how does how do our senses and, and our mind and, and everything else impact our experience with food? Because a lot of us, you know, we just eat. We don't think about eating as an ex- our experience with food. That seems uh, like a big a big thought for people who just are grabbing something on the go and they're just eating because they're hungry. Well, there's a whole lot. In fact, that's what my whole book is about, so I don't want to spend right. hours on right, the right, right. with you, but I'll just give you a couple of tidbits. Yes. I mean, for example, I just already mentioned how the you know smell and taste produce flavor. Well, it's also the case that our hearing is involved in our, sense of, our experience of food. For example, when we're in really loud environments, it turns out that our, the nerve that's involved in perceiving taste gets disturbed such that it changes our ability to taste certain things. And actually, it creates a change such that things like tomato juice taste a lot better. And this is why people tend to order tomato juice on airplanes, because in fact, being on an airplane is a really loud environment. Right. So that's just one example. Another example is visual. So for instance, the color of the plate, the size of the plate, the dimensions of the plate, those sorts of things go into our experience of food and how much we eat and how fast we eat, how much we see food, obviously has an impact on on that. For instance, looking at gorgeous pictures of food, you know, aka food porn, that certainly drives us to eat. And then there's a myriad of psychological factors from our own emotional state to our social environment to the labels that we're exposed to with respect to food. All of those influencing not only our perception of what we're eating or how much or how fast we eat, but even our metabolism, which is really very fascinating. Let's drill down on that a little bit and go back to what you were talking about, because I had written, I I had that question about the tomato juice on the plane. So does that, with the hearing, is that going to uh, be effective if we're at a sporting event that's very loud or if if we're at a movie that's, you know, one of these disaster movies that's very loud? Is that, does the same principle apply? Am I going to want something different if I'm in one of those environments than on an airplane where I'm going to think that my tomato juice tastes so much better? Well, that's an excellent question. And the difference between, I think, a disaster movie, I think the bar might be similar to an airplane if it's a constantly loud noise. But in a movie environment, you have variation in sound, so you're not bombarded with a constant level of high-level noise. The difference with being on an airplane is you have this constant, basically 85 decibels around you for a continuous period of time, and that's what produces the perturbation in this uh, cranial nerve called the cordotympany. Now, if you were in a, just a, a really loud environment for a brief moment, the effect probably wouldn't have that kind of an impact on food because it would be so transient. Okay. But the bar example is actually really a good one. And one of the other interesting things that happens in really loud bar environments, and one of the things that came out of this research, is actually salty and sweet taste are depressed while this perception of umami, and that's why tomato juice tastes so great, is because tomatoes have a lot of glutamate, which is what produces umami, and that is elevated. But the other thing that tends to happen in really loud environments 
especially, you know, musically loud environments, is it's very distracting. It's like sensory overload. And when we're highly distracted, we don't really pay very much attention to what we're eating. It's like, you know, what happens when you're in front of the television set and all of a sudden that bowl of popcorn's gone and you're like wondering what happened to (laughs) it, where did the gremlins come in? (laughs) Well, it's similar when we're in really loud environments. We often don't notice. It's harder to kind of feel our body. It's harder to get the same experience with eating because there's so much stimulation around us. And actually, also interesting, people who have a tendency to drink often misjudge how much they've had to drink when they're in really loud environments and can drink potentially more than they may have intended to. And it's because the noise is distracting us and taking our, our, our mind off something else, uh, apart from the umami, which we'll go back to. But it's is it is that the reason that we're hearing so much and our mind is dealing with that, that we're not paying attention to the other senses? Well, to a certain extent, we're not paying. It's hard to concentrate on any of uh, what we can, you know, sort of not... The real difference with respect to the loud noise is, one, there is changes that are happening to the corticotympany nerve, which is affecting salty and sweet. So you may be eating more salty snacks than you might have otherwise because you're not getting as much salty taste, so you want to eat more. Um, that may also encourage drinking because, you know, the reason why bars have peanuts and pretzels is because when you eat salt, you get thirsty, right. so you consume more. But the other thing that seems to be the case is that it's harder for us to feel what's going on in our bodies when we have all this thumping noise around us. So if you're getting a little tipsy and there's all this really loud music around you, it's harder to feel that tipsiness when you're in this hugely noisy environment. And so you might be drinking past a certain point of tipsiness than you might have otherwise done. Let's go back to the, uh, you mentioned the tomato juice and the umami, which is a, a term that I wasn't familiar with till just a, a few years ago. It seemed to start coming up with certain restaurants are going, oh, our burger has this umami. For those who aren't familiar, what is, what is umami? So umami is a mouth sensation. I hesitate to call it a taste. I personally don't consider it to be one of the basic tastes, although there are a lot of people who do. The reason I don't consider it a basic taste is because it's very confused with salt. It's, you know, it's hard to distinguish the two. So that's the reason I don't include it. But it's certainly a mouth sensation, and it's produced by uh, experiencing glutamate. So, for instance, the most classical form of umami is monosodium glutamate, or MSG, you know, what's typically you know, has its fame from Asian restaurants back in the 70s especially, but it's also present in, in real food that has a lot of glutamate in it, such as tomatoes and mushrooms and meat too, obviously soy sauce, cheese, bread. So the Mediterranean diet is very high in glutamate and very umami-ish. So those are the kinds of foods you want to take on an airplane or anytime you're in a constantly loud environment because that kind of food is going to taste amazing. And um, things like grapefruit, which are sour and bitter, loud noise doesn't affect it, so it's just as loud, I mean, just, <laughs> just as sour and bitter. You're getting less sweet as well, so it'll be not very good. Okay, so we have to, we have to when we're getting on a plane, make sure we have, uh, look up what, just for example, besides tomato juice, and you mentioned the Mediterranean diet, a couple other foods that might be high in umami. Well, anything like pizza, because like I said, cheese, bread, tomato, okay. <laughs> mushrooms, <laughs> all those things are, are high in glutamate, So, or a sandwich that has those things. So also fish and meats, bacon actually has a lot of umami, so you oh. could have, you know, a bacon cheese sandwich. Uh, that would certainly be a good choice, too. So a lot of things we already like to eat, but you want to stay away from 
things like probably broccoli and healthy things because they're going to taste worse on an airplane. (laughs) I don't know if that's possible, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break, and then I want to go back to something you touched on, too. And and you hear this a lot when people are trying to lose weight. Oh, use a smaller plate. So Mm -hmm. we'll talk about the visuals and how the visual... Our, our sense of sight affects why we're eating and how we're eating. Rachel Hers is my guest. Her book is called Why You Eat What You Eat. You can also uh, check her out at Rachel, rachelherz.com. That's where you can get all the information on her other books, The Scent of Desire, and that's disgusting. More with Rachel in just a moment. This- We are talking about the science behind our relationship with food. The book, Why You Eat What You Eat. Rachel Hers is the author. She is a neuroscientist, and she is my guest here on WGN. Uh, Rachel, we before we uh, before we took the break, we were talking about how sound can affect how we're eating and what we're what we're tasting. You had mentioned about plate size, and and I know this goes back to this the sense of sight. Is it also an environmental thing, and how how is this all connected? Yeah, sure. So the plate size is obviously correlated with portion size, and we hear a lot about portion control. And as a matter of fact, the size of our basic serving plates have grown very much in the last, you know, five decades or so. In fact, the size of what we would consider a normal dinner plate would have been a serving platter probably 50 or 60 years ago. So what happens with that is we start, you know, filling our plates because we still hold on to sort of Depression-era norms of make sure to eat all the food on your plate and so on, and so that leads to consuming a lot of food. Now, it turns out that if you put your food on a smaller plate, you will feel like you see the full plate full of food, and that can be satisfying in itself. And this is due to what's known as uh, the Delbus illusion, where when you have a, let's say, a black circle in a small in, that's a, in a in a white circle that's only a little bit bigger than it. Okay. That black circle looks a lot bigger than if you put that exact same black circle in a white circle that's quite a bit bigger than it. So it's like if you had a small a clump of pasta on a really big plate, it would look like a lot less than the same amount of pasta on a small plate. Okay. And when we see the plate full, we feel better about it. And I actually heard a really good trick, which was the fact if you use a concave bowl. So that the top looks like you actually are, you know, one of your regular dinner plates, but because it goes down in the center, it's not actually fully round all the way through, and that's another way you can trick yourself. So we like to see the whole food on the plate, and we like to eat everything that's on the plate. So the idea of a smaller plate or one of these concave bowls is the way to go. And uh, you see those, as soon as you mentioned it, I can picture all these, a lot of Italian restaurants have the big bowls, so the outside of the... The bowl is huge. The diameter is very big. But then in the in the center, there's not really all that much stuff in there. It's probably the correct portion size. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. All right. So now we've we've kind of and again we're glossing over a lot because there's so much in the book. Again, the book "Why You Eat What You Eat." Um, let's talk about since we're talking about uh, looking at the food and how it's visually appealing to us. Uh, sometimes we get cravings. What causes what causes these cravings, and how can we manage? these cravings because sometimes we're craving things that are probably not the best for us 
Well, cravings come for a variety of reasons. First of all, cravings come when we're hungry, (laughs) and that's good. So if you're hungry, you know, definitely eat. And sometimes it turns out if we're really craving something, we could be in a state of depletion, although that's not usually very common these days because we have so much available food around us. But if you have been, for example, working out in the hot sun for hours, you could be in a state, for example, of salt depletion because you've been sweating so much. But normally we don't really have that same kind of real physiological uh, need-based craving. We usually have just a desire-based craving. And when desire is driving our cravings when we're not actually hungry, we need to ask ourselves why we are craving what we're craving. And often the kinds of foods we're craving are high in sugar and also in fat. And those foods actually are neurochemically really positive for us. So when we taste sugar, it actually turns on the bliss part of our brain, our reward center, our pleasure center gets turned on, as well as it even relieves pain. And the same goes for fat. Fat feels really fabulous. (laughs) And it actually starts um, triggering our natural endorphins, so relieving our pain both physically and mentally. So there's a real um, emotional basis, a physiological and neurochemical basis for our drive for these foods. But it's also possible that these foods are connected to people for you that make you feel good or make you feel comforted or make you feel soothed, like the kinds of foods that mom used to make so that when you're feeling kind of down, you want to eat those foods because you want to get a warm hug, basically, you know, from your loved one far away. And so the question is, you need to ask yourself, why am I eating this? And do I really want this? And am I getting the pleasure out? The, sort of the bottom line that I want people to really understand from reading this book is just ask yourself a couple of questions while you're consuming. And one of the basic ones is, am I getting pleasure? If the answer is yes, then go ahead. So let's say the first bite of cheesecake, is that pleasurable? Yes. How about the third? Yeah, it's still pretty good. How about the sixth? Well, maybe not so much. How about the tenth? No. Okay, stop. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that goes, our, my news person, Pam, just came in with an empty bag of caramel corn. And she said, ask why I ate this whole bag of caramel corn. It, it, is that is it just a distraction? Because you mentioned sometimes when we're she's in there working on the news, and would it be the same as if I'm watching TV and all of a sudden, like we mentioned, the popcorn bowl? Oh, it's gone. You're just, just we're not paying attention to what we're eating, yeah. and it just it just goes away. Absolutely. Unfortunately, so what happens when we're distracted, work is just as bad, maybe even sometimes worse than television, because especially if we're engaged in what we're doing, we're really, you know, not paying attention. Our hand is just kind of mindlessly moving into the bowl or the bag. And what happens under these conditions is, first of all, we're not even we're not even noticing we're doing it we're not feeling whether we're full or not and we're not getting the flavor of the food either so we're not feeling satiated so let's say you've got, you kind of know you're tasting something kind of sweet and salty yeah. but you're not getting your bang for your buck so you just keep on doing it because you haven't really appreciated and perceived the full experience, whereas if you paid attention, you know, literally mindfully ate, so like, oh, wow, this kernel of corn tastes really salty and sweet and delicious, and I'm really enjoying it, then you'd eat a lot less because you'd be satisfied much sooner. Let's go back to cravings for a minute, because I got everything you said about, you know, you start thinking of somebody, all those things. Why do we sometimes get a craving where we can actually taste that food. We're not anywhere around it. It's not cooking in our home, but I can conjure up the thought of, 
a certain type of food, and all of a sudden it's like I'm eating it right then, and I want it now. I've got to have it. Well, so that goes to our memories, and what we're thinking of is the food from our past that we've really loved. So, for instance, if there's some type of a food that you've really, really enjoy, or you have a special memory of eating, or you know something from your past with respect to a certain kind of a meal, maybe it's even the emotional qualities, the people you were with, in social situations, so on. You really want to have that meal now. Now, unfortunately, often I'm I'm not sure if this is quite what you're talking about, but often when we have these sort of memory cravings. Things, and then we go to get that food, it's not as good as the memory. <laughs> sure. The memory lives, you know, this perfect meal that we had, you know, at some point. And then if we try to recreate it, even if it is exact, you know, we're not exactly the same. The situation isn't exactly the same. And so our perception might not be the same. So if you do sort of go down that memory lane trip for your favorite meal, be prepared <laughs> to be a tiny bit disappointed, potentially. All right. Rachel Hers is my guest. She is the author of Why You Eat What You Eat. On the other side of the news, I want to talk about the sense of smell because there was a, a fascinating, one of the chapters in the book is has a fascinating story about uh, a man and kind of how the medical community discounts and most of us discount the sense of smell how it's uh, cr connected to everything we eat and all of that so rachel if you could just hang on for a minute sure. more with rachel rachelhers.com is the website the book why you eat what you eat we'll talk all about the sense of smell connected to your food on the other side here the sounds uh, that matter we'll tell you that at the top of the hour but right now it's 4 30 that means it's time for the news here's pam gn Well, I hope you are not uh, smelling death. I hope you are just smelling whatever it is you are uh, going to eat or whatever is around. Uh, Why You Eat What You Eat is the name of the book. It's the science behind our relationship with food. Rachel Hers is the author. And uh, in the book, there's a lot of science, but there's also fascinating stories. There's a story of somebody who is not full unless they eat rice. There's uh, how people become picky eaters. But the one that really struck me was the story of Stan who is a, uh, a man who was in a horrible accident and lost his sense of smell. And there were there's a lot of things that go around uh, along with smell. And as I mentioned, Rachel, at the beginning, I don't have a sense of smell. And as I read this chapter, I was like, wow, th this kind of explains a lot. Uh, how important is smell to our relationship with food? Well, it's important and I and I'm sorry for you but I mean you're a little bit luckier than Stan because if you were born without a sense of smell you don't know what you're missing exactly. <laughs> people who had smell and then lost it in an accident become really traumatized often by it and unfortunately this depression and debilitation and the quality of their life tends to get worse with time so you're actually lucky that you don't know what it's <laughs> like and you've, you your brain is built a little bit differently so so that's actually Good for you, but because of the fact that flavor is all due to our nose, we yeah. don't get that when we don't have smell, and it's really actually quite easy to lose your sense of smell in an accident. All you need is to get hit hard either at the front of your head around the level of your eyebrow or at the back of your head, and this can happen in car accidents really easily. It can happen in frontal contact sports like football. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that unfortunately can happen relatively easily, and, and often what happens is that people lose their sense of smell for life from that. Mm. There's other ways you can lose smell easily, often getting sick. Um, 
temporarily or having nasal polyps, but those kinds of things can be treated. But when you've lost your smell traumatically, it often cannot be treated. But anyway, um, on the, the bad side about this is with respect to food is that, like I mentioned before, if you were, for example, craving a char-grilled steak or pecan pie or bacon, and you ate the char-grilled steak or bacon, you would only taste salt. And if you ate the pecan pie, you'd only taste sweet. And for people who are wanting that food, I mean, you don't want to just have some, like, sugar on a spoon or salt on a spoon. You want right. that food experience. And although you can get some texture sensations, it is not the same thing. And people really become extremely frustrated and extremely upset about this loss of their real food experiences that they want. And Often what happens, so, you know, in the case of Stan, and this is actually relatively common, you know, people tend to go through these sort of extreme swings at the beginning, let's say the first couple of years after losing their sense of smell, where they'll, like, I'm just craving that bacon so much, I'm just going to eat all the bacon I can anyway, and maybe it'll come back to me. Right. And then you realize it's not coming back. And then you decide, I'm not eating bacon, I'm not eating anything. So what happens in these little spikes is that people gain weight, then they lose weight. But then what ends up happening typically is over time people gain weight because the only experiences from food that they can get that are still pleasurable are those that are high in salt, sugar, and fat, and those tend to be high calories. So they are getting the pleasure points from the taste and the sensation of, let's say, you know, creaminess and so on. But they, and that's high calorie and it's often not nutritious. So if you do lose your sense of smell in some kind of an accident, and you don't think it's going to come back, be very careful about how you eat because you still want to make sure you're getting nutrition as well as some pleasure, you know, from salt, sugar, and fat. Well, and that was something I had, because people have asked me over the years, oh, so you can't taste. And I was like, well, yeah, I can taste. But then you, you pointed out in the book the difference and the confusion that people have between taste and flavor. You know, so right. you miss out. You miss out on all the subtleties. It's not just. It's not just the aroma that you're missing out, but you're missing out on the uh, on all the the underlying flavors that are in there. Yeah, because what flavor is, is your brain puts together the taste, let's say, of salt and the aroma of bacon, and it puts that together, and that's the flavor of bacon. So the taste, when we say the word taste, 99.99% of the time, we really mean flavor, because we're not talking about the saltiness or the sweetness or the sourness or the bitterness. We're talking about that composite experience, and your nose is what's telling you the difference between, let's say, you know, a strip of dried salmon and a strip of bacon, so or a potato and um, an apple or coffee or red wine, you know, assuming your eyes were closed and so forth. Now, explain, because there was also something I learned that we we taste when we're when we're smelling our food. It's a two way process. It's in and out. So exactly. So this is. Yeah, exactly. So we so when we have, let's say, the the bowl of steaming hot chili is being brought over to the table and it's sitting down in front of you. You can smell it. You smell it through your nostrils. That's the kind of typical way we smell stuff like if we're sniffing a flower or we're sniffing perfume. We sniff in through our nostrils. But what happens and why this this is sort of this confusion of where taste slash flavor is, is that when we're chewing food in our mouth, the aromatic molecules from what we're consuming go from the back of the mouth, there's actually an opening from the back of the mouth, and it goes up through the back of the mouth into the nose and goes to the same receptors that it would happen if you were just sniffing in through your nostrils. And while that's going on, we're chewing and we're breathing. 
So we breathe in, and the air from our mouth whooshes up from the back of our mouth up to our nose, and that and stimulates those receptors. But we have to exhale for the air to go down, pass over those receptors, and for us to get the smell. So it's like if you tried to eat and hold your breath, you wouldn't get the flavor either. Okay. So. We and that's why eat, people, if they, <laughs> that's why people, if they're stuffed up, they they say they can't taste things too, right? Exactly. So in that case, what's happening, even though you're breathing, is that you're only breathing from your mouth because the passageway between your mouth and your nose is blocked with mucus, and so you can't get that experience. And the other thing that's really interesting is when we get the aroma from food, actually the taste itself gets more intense. So like the sweetness of the pecan pie is sweeter when we can also smell the caramel and the pecans or the bacon tastes saltier when we can also smell the aromas from the bacon. So the taste itself gets more intense because there's a synergy between smell and taste and our brain lights up extra strong when the two of them go together. Rachel, I got a text from somebody who said they lost their sense of smell and taste for about six months. It returned, and now things smell differently. Is that is that common? Is that something you've heard of before? Yes, I have heard of that before, and it's interesting. I, I'm assuming, considering it was a transient situation, that it must have been either maybe illness or maybe medication-related. And depending upon what went on, it could be that certain things were a little bit reset. It could also be that experiences change a little bit with time, and depending upon you know what was the cause of this event, sometimes that can also change perception a little bit. But I have heard of this, and actually the most interesting cases I've heard of is people who have had accidents where they have lost their sense of smell, and there is sometimes some hope for getting it back uh, when, you know, let's say the the damage that's been done hasn't been totally severe and there is some possibility for regeneration. And I know someone who had this experience and thought it was completely gone, but kept on sniffing everything she possibly could, and actually this active sniffing seems to also really help with trying to make the reconnections happen again. Huh. If it's caught early enough. Anyway, she now can experience smells and flavors again, but she says things smell differently to her too. And she thinks, and I think, that it's to do with the fact that in her new wiring, because she had to literally like get new neurons to rewire in her brain with respect to smell, that they wired somewhat differently so that things don't taste or smell the way they used to because the wiring isn't exactly the same. But that's a, a different case, I think, than your caller or your texter who has a um, something more transient yeah that's it was it it's not well again all of this sounds foreign to me because i don't uh, <laughs> i don't know but that, that that was another thing um the statistic the the ama the american medical association they don't uh, they don't really put a whole lot of stock in losing your sense of smell there was a study that that people were asked would they rather lose their big toe or their sense of smell? Explain that. It, it seemed a little strange. Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, most people really discount their sense of smell. They, you know, people really do not value it. When we think of, you know, vision is so important, hearing is important, but smell, you know, who cares really? People don't understand how it's really involved in every aspect of our lives. Food is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's involved in our sexual and social relationships. It's involved in our sense of self. It's involved in our memory. It's involved in our, our ability to think even. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary how it's involved in so many things. But because we don't realize it, as long as we have it, you know, 
things seem fine. It's when people lose it that they suddenly become aware of this really drastic change. But anyway, the American Medical Association, which is really only worrying about, you know, are you eating, yeah. <laughs> um, really devalues the sense of smell and ranks it only between 1% and 5% of the value of your life, whereas wow. vision is rated as 85%. So what this means is if you, like, lost your sense of smell in an accident and you were trying to get some compensation... You know, and the insurance company says, well, look, the AMA says it's worth practically nothing. So, you know, here's $5, go away. And I actually often work in legal cases where people who have lost their sense of smell and their lives are totally derailed. And I make the state, you know, the tell the insurance company, no, yeah. <laughs> this is not trivial. But um, the the situation with, you know, it's not just insurance companies. It's just like you mentioned with this study with the undergraduates that they really, you know, people just don't think their sense of smell is important. And, in fact, it wasn't even their big toe in that study. It was their little toe. Well, their little toe. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so people really, you know, discount how important their sense of smell is. But, you know, if anyone unfortunately has the situation where they lose it, and especially if it's not just temporary, you know, it can be really, really uh one of the worst things to have happen. Well, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but Kevin has a question for you, Rachel. He's uh, Kevin, welcome. Hello. What's your question? Yes, my question. I, I had uh, surgery. I, I had uh, severe damage to my nose, and I've had a bunch of surgeries. And just recently, up to two years ago, three years ago, after the surgery, I lost complete... I have no smell whatsoever. And since then, I just... My food, I just appetite just is not there. Nothing sounds good, you know. Anything, only thing I've ever seen I like is sweets, and I can't mm-hmm. seem to get past it. And I'm trying to figure out what I can do. I, I've lost a ton of weight because of it, which is unusual. I hear you talking about gaining weight, but for some reason I've lost it because just nothing sounds good. So right. you're trying to figure well, out I mean, how to fix people it. People can lose weight too. It's more common though that people will gain weight, but you're not you're not totally alone. Well, in my book, actually, in Why You Eat What You Eat, I discuss a variety of things where people can try to use different strategies from their different senses to try to make the food more interesting and more appealing for them. I mean, one thing is from a, a visual presentation perspective. Another is working with textures, so combining different kinds of textures like creamy or crunchy or things that you like to right. feel in your mouth to make it more appealing. But you're completely right that, you know, sugar is something which is, you know, innately pleasing. So you're going to still have that craving and that pleasure, and you know, obviously, that it's not good just to eat sugar all right. the time. Right. <laughs> but there are there are certain things that you can potentially do, and, and it's sort of you need to kind of figure out what you think will work best for you. I mean, even listening to certain kinds of music might help and, you know, the situations that you're in when you're eating. So there's ways that you can augment your experience with food to try to make it more appetizing for you, even though you can't get the flavor any longer. Well, good luck, Kevin. Thank you. Can I ask you what's the name of your book? Why You Eat eat What You Eat. Why You Eat What You Eat. Thank you so much. Take care, Kevin. You're welcome. All right, one last one last smell question, Rachel, and then we'll move on to something else. But I, again, I just it's fascinating to me. How do how do aromas make people want to eat more? Why do we if we smell certain things, why do all of a sudden we have to consume a ton of it? Well, because of the fact that when we smell something, the part of our brains that are immediately activated are the amygdala, which is where emotion is processed. So they're very emotional. They're also it's also connected to the part of the brain where 
motivation is processed. That's called the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus is also involved in food. So we have this emotional and food-motivating instant activation when we smell things, and so that drives us to eating when the smell has to do with food. All right. The book, again, Why You Eat What You Eat, uh, the science behind our relationship with food. Uh, A couple more questions for Rachel Hers. When we uh, come back, we're going to take a very quick break. So just hang on one second, Rachel. Thanks again. Uh, All right. We'll do this. Then we'll start wrapping things up. It is WGN. Yourpayroll.com. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Oh, man. Cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. I love a good cookie. C. I love all sorts of food, even though I can't smell it, Uh, but I also like to learn, and that's why I was uh, reading Why You Eat What You Eat, the science behind our relationship with food, the author, Rachel Herz, a neuroscientist and author of The Scent of Desire, and that's disgusting. Uh, You can get all her information, rachelherz.com. A couple more minutes, Rachel. Uh, Thanks again for spending so much time with me. So... Somebody else, somebody texted this in, but it's a question I wanted to ask, too, because you talk about how we can resist. People, people love to go to, the, go to buffets. They go to a brunch, there's a buffet. They go Mother's Day, whatever, there's a big buffet. And, and there's a part of our mind that thinks, well, if it's all I can eat, I should really eat all mm-hmm. I can possibly eat. But, one, we know we shouldn't from a health standpoint. How do, we, how do we battle that? Because you look at this buffet table and it is filled with a bounty of everything you can desire, but we have to, we have to overcome that, right? Yes. Well, a couple of things. First of all, are you know when something seems sort of almost free, like we pay a fat flat fee and then we get to gorge as much as we possibly can, we sort of have you know sort of remnants from our sort of evolutionary past where we needed to eat as much as possible, lest famine be around the corner. Right. Sort of kicks in in these situations. <laughs> the other thing that happens is when we see a lot of variety. So, like you said, the all-you-can-eat buffet, but Thanksgiving and the Super Bowl coming up, yes. you know, events where there's tons of different kinds of food out for us to see, we want to sample everything. And we don't get nearly as full on the food when we have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and more and more and more than if we were just eating, let's say, only chicken wings. We get much more satiated, much more sort of, you know, okay, I've had enough if we only eat one type of food. So two things. First of all, the antidote to all this variety is actually monotony. So if you, you know, for instance, have a Super Bowl party yourself, maybe your guests won't be very happy, but only serve chicken wings or only serve, you know, stuffed potato skins. (laughs) And, And then both you and your guests will not Overconsume. The other thing is, and this you can do both at the party and with respect to the all-you-can-eat buffet, is sit far away from the food. The further we are from it, two things happen. One, if you can't see it, then you're a lot less lured by it. So even though you're in the restaurant with the all-you-can-eat buffet, you don't see. If you don't see the food, you know you may have gotten your plate and you put food down on it and so forth. But now you're at the table again, mm-hmm. and you don't see the 25 things that you missed taking the first time around. So you're less lured by it, as well as the fact that you now have to get up and walk all that distance to get to that buffet again because presumably you're sitting fairly far away in the restaurant and we're all a little bit lazy so if we have to get up and walk you know a distance plus you know go by everybody who's going to see us oh going back for seconds or thirds that also tends to be a bit inhibiting so for little behavioral tricks you know sit far away from the all you can eat or the the massive mega sampler and try 
not to have anything, you know, don't look at it if you possibly can, and being far away helps. And also, if you're going to be at an event or, you know, preparing an event, the fewer options you present to your guests and yourself, the better, because the less you'll end up eating. Okay, and there was something else as you were talking about the the monotony of the food and the Super Bowl parties. You also said the number of people there will determine how much we're going to eat, too. Yeah, so that's another unfortunate thing about these parties that we go to where there's a lot of different food because the more people we're with, the more we eat, and there's a couple of reasons for that as well. And the main reason is the social component, which also leads back to the distraction component. So while we're socializing and having a great time, we're not paying attention to how much food we're putting on our plates and then into our mouths. And so, oh, my goodness, the plate is empty. I better load up again. And the other thing that's interesting, especially if you're at a restaurant where, you know, let's say after the softball game, everyone goes to the sure. bar and grill and they're, you know, you order a bunch of snacks and so forth. And then the, the server comes along and like scoops all those plates away. And now your table is empty. You don't see the leftovers, like all the chicken wing bones and all the other oh, stuff that didn't okay. get eaten. So now it's like, okay, clear palate order some more, but if the food were left on the table, you know, you'd look down and go, oh, my goodness, look how much we yeah. ate. Well, maybe we don't need another round of whatever the case might be. So that's an, that's kind of the opposite of what I said about seeing food. Here you want to see the end of eating because okay. now you can remind yourself of how much you've already had to eat. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and the book is fantastic. It's called Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. Rachel, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you, very informative. RachelHers.com is the website where you can get all of Rachel's information and pick up her other two books as well, The Scent of Desire, and that's disgusting. Rachel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been wonderful. on me. Brian Noonan, 720 WGN. We're here till 6.15 tonight because Dave Hennett and the Northwestern Wildcats are in Ann Arbor. They're going to play the Wolverines. A little basketball action coming your way. Dave has the pregame at 6.15, tip-off at 6.30. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome back into the studio three guys that I spoke to in the summer when they were uh, a project was almost done. They were mm-hmm. working on it. I think at that point you still had the Kickstarter. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, But now the Kickstarter is done, so I'm happy the film is done. Jason Polavoy is here. Polavoy is here. He's the director. Uh, Nick Jenkins is the producer. And Teddy Wachholz is the director of photography of what, you may ask, of the documentary F Your Hair, which uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the Spanish version because I don't know if the FCC monitors my Spanish. And uh, <laughs> plus it's bad. But we'll get into what the whole thing is. F Your Hair, the documentary, is part of the, uh, the series Stranger Than Fiction. It will be shown at the Gene Siskel Film Center Friday, January 25th, Saturday the 26th, and Wednesday, January 30th. Uh, showtimes 8, 15, 5, and 6. You can get all the information uh, if you go to siskelfilmcenter.org. First of all, welcome back. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Secondly, congratulations. I watched the film the other day. And it was terrific. Uh, you know, when I, you. when I when I talked to you the first time, I had seen the trailer. Uh, it wasn't you guys were almost there, but it wasn't it wasn't complete. You were on your way to do uh, you know running out to do other projects uh, under the umbrella of One City Films, which mm-hmm. is your company. Um, 
it turned out great. Thank you. And I think uh, I think when you when people get to see the whole thing, the power of the story will really come through, especially when uh, you get to see the main characters talking about what it is. So, Jason, give us a brief for those who are not familiar with the Five Rabbits Cerveceria and this whole thing. Give us a brief overview of what what the movie is about. Sure. Yeah. So. Five Rabbit Cerveceria is a uh, Latino-owned brewery on the southwest side of Chicago, uh, and they were brewing the house beer for the Trump Hotel in Chicago, in River North. And uh, when Trump announced he was running for president uh, and made his now infamous comments about uh, Mexican immigrants being rapists and thieves, they were uh, kind of struck by this idea that they could not continue to sell or serve their beer uh, in the Trump Tower. So they decided to pull their beer out and rename the beer to a word that we cannot say on the radio. Right. Uh, which roughly translates to F your hair. Uh, and so our <laughs> film is about that decision, the brewery, and the fallout of that decision. Um, because, and Nick, you can speak to this. Anybody who knows small businesses, especially a small brewery, it's kind of see to your pants for a while you don't have you're not operating with a lot of room for error and so for them to brew this beer thinking well this is a and they say it in the in the film we didn't really know much about him you know we thought this is a great business opportunity for a small brewery so to make the decision to pull it that had to it had to weigh heavy on their minds. Oh, absolutely! I think you look at you know any any craft brewer and they'd be jumping out of their seat to sort of take this contract. You know, it's a it's a high margin contract, as they say in the business, because it's it's beer that essentially doesn't need to be sold. Right. It's you know you set up the contract in, in month one and then they buy a certain amount of kegs every month thereafter. So it was a big portion of their business, and I think that you know we often talk about their decision as morals over money, and that's what it yeah. comes down to is that they're saying I'm going to let this go. But will my business survive? And I think that that film, you know, the film that we've created, really helps to address answers to that question: is do they make the right decision in doing this? Right. How did you guys? How did you become aware of the story? And how did you guys, as One City Films, decide this is this is a story that we really need to tell? So this story was covered uh, pretty uh, pretty well by Monica Ang at WBZ, mm-hmm. um, and so I became aware of it because I'm a craft beer aficionado and because I had been reading beer blogs about it. Uh, and I went out and bought a t-shirt um, <laughs> with the with the new logo of, of the beer. Yeah. And so I had this in my mind and, and uh, I used to have a show on WGN that continues to run called Chicago's Best. Oh, and I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I used to produce Chicago's Best and we had a brew pubs episode and I thought it would be awesome to get these people on the show and meet them. Yeah. And so I became friendlier with Andres and Mila, the, the uh, husband and wife owners of the brewery. And... I always wanted to tell the story, and so when we got together, myself, Nick, and Teddy, we were looking for um, projects, for documentary projects, and I I pitched it, and, and they kind of both went for it, and I convinced Andres and Mila that this would be a cool thing to do. Now, was that a hard pitch? Because in the, in the film, F Your Hair, Andres... And this is not to say Mila does not feel this way. Andre seemed to be agonizing over things a little bit more. Mila seems like, hey, you know, this is our decision, and it it was a hard decision, but 
screw you, blah, blah. Whereas Andres, in some of the scenes, he looks like he was close to tears. Teddy, you were you were shooting him. Was that? Am I accurate? This does not look like it was uh, put on for the camera. No, nothing was put on for the camera. You're right there, and I think in, I'm not quote. I'm not. This is my, not my quote, but Mila, I think, said Andres is a lot more thoughtful than I am. So you can see ah. Andres kind of really mulling over the decisions, yeah. and and Mila is just kind of you know she'll react to it, and you know let's let's run and gun, and um, so you can see that a lot. And actually, well, yeah, because at one point she says uh, he doesn't want me to make the phone calls. You know, <laughs> sure, yeah, you know, right. uh, yeah. They don't there. want me to make Mila, the phone Mila, right. is, Mila is an incredibly principled person. Yes, and uh, I think in a lot of ways, similar to myself, when when you feel that way and you feel wronged in some way, um, there's almost nothing that can get in your way. Right. Whereas. Andres just wants to make some beer. He wants to make some really good beer, and he wants people to drink it and, and to enjoy it and didn't necessarily want all of the press that surrounded this, and they never right. did interviews mm -hmm. about it. No, they, and that's, why, that's yeah. why I was asking about how hard it was to sell them because he really seemed like he didn't, you know, they made this decision for themselves. They weren't trying to make a public statement. Right. Uh, he, you know, when when Five Rabbit was lumped in with all these big companies that were boycotting uh, Trump Tower and, mm -hmm. and making a stand, he was like, "I, we weren't supposed to be in in this. This was right. not mm -hmm. a thing." So, how did you guys approach him and say, "Listen, your story is is important. It's interesting. Let us do a film." That was all, I mean, that was all Jason, but I, I will say, Brian, I think Jason's pitch to us was equally as difficult because of that, because of that, because, because, hang on, let me explain that for a second. And Monica Ang, the great Monica Ang gets, gets to this a, a bit in the film as well. She's like, you know, she presents this, this story and WBEZ, some of the editors are like, oh my God, another Trump, another Trump right. story. We don't yeah, need yeah. another Trump story. You know, me personally, and, and Teddy, I don't want to speak for you, but when Jason came initially, and, and I, I'm not a craft beer aficionado, so I did not know the story in, in its full detail. I got detail. to ask, is that, because when somebody, is that on his business card? Is yeah, that on your business card? It should be. No, he, he yes. is, he's, he's, a, he's a really People big know that about yeah. I, yeah. It's his yeah. only and, and title. Think, yeah, People right. know that about me. But, you know, when he came and he pitched the story to us, I was like, oh, you know, there were so many Trump films out there. What, how are we going to make something that's truly unique and stand yeah. out? And then, and then, you know, we went to that first meeting with Mila and Andres, and, um, you know, the story kind of jumped out at us. So I knew we had something there and i knew we right. needed to create this film so and it's it a very local i mean you guys one city films you're you because we'll talk about your other projects coming up but this is this is right in your wheelhouse hyper local mm -hmm. real but with a national the national footprint to it absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i think uh i think when we made the initial pitch to to the folks at five rabbit um, they sort of recognized because they had not really done any press about this. Mm -hmm. um, they recognized the importance of uh, m maybe telling this story now because when the story initially broke, Andres released a pre-written statement but really didn't do any interviews or anything of that nature. Um, and then they kind of realized that he wasn't going away. Trump wasn't going away. Yeah. And, you know, the policies were only getting worse. It was rhetoric when it was him announcing his his run for, for president. Because this all started, again, just to remind people, this all started when he was a candidate. This right. was well before he was elected president. Right. People people lump everything... Oh, I'm sorry. People lump everything <laughs> that he does together. Um, but this was literally when he announced he was running for president is when he made the infamous statement about Mexico immigrants right. um, so they never did any press on this and and they thought maybe this is the time that we need to actually tell the story to a larger audience that can see this um, for, for for what it is yeah. because he's not going anywhere 
No, and it's uh, again, it's fascinating. So let's let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the the meat of the movie. What what is happening? Uh, again, the movie is F Your Hair. It is a documentary. It is going to be f- screening at the Siskel Film Center as part of their Stranger Than Fiction documentary series. The uh, show times are Friday, January twenty fifth at eight fifteen p.m. Saturday, January twenty sixth at five p.m. and Wednesday, the thirtieth of January at six p.m. You can go to siskelfilmcenter.org to get uh, your tickets. And what's your uh, what is onecityfilms.com? That's yeah, uh, that's that's, uh, that's your website. Yep. We'll go there. So we'll talk more about it. If you have any questions about the film, 312-981-7200. Talk with uh, Jason Palavoy, Palavoy uh, Nick Jenkins, and Teddy Wachholz, uh from the U.S. has become a dumping, dumping ground, ground for everybody else's probe. Is this what he said? They were really just getting started, and I think their big break was that they were the house beer for Trump Hotel. I know he was not the very best guy, but... It was not something that we thought about. We were just like, ah, there's this account. They're pretty big. Business is business. I mean, we were just selling beer. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good, good people. people. What the... What the f- Why... 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 I don't know. I don't know what to say, really. Hey, Trump is un- I don't know. He's an... He's a... I mean, I can't believe that we're selling to them. Essentially, what they're saying to Donald Trump is you're fired. It was just such a a moral stand. No, they're not saying that at all. We thought it wouldn't be congruent to be making a beer for the Trump Towers. You'll see it in the lawsuit. You'll read about it as soon as I file the lawsuit. We all felt that there was no choice but to really do this. I do remember being very nervous. It's celebratory. It's not negative. It's a perfect little middle finger, so to speak. It was something that took a life of its own. It's, uh... It's the magic elixir for all of us. (laughs) It's so funny and ridiculous that no one can really say, oh, you're telling Donald Trump, you know, you. I mean, we are, but... Yes, that is uh, the last voice you heard there in the trailer for F Your Hair was of uh, Mila Ramirez, one of the uh, owners and founders of Five Rabbit Cerveceria. In studio with me, the men who put this film together, we've got uh, Jason Palavoy. He was the director. Nick Jenkins is the producer. And Teddy Wackles is the director of photography for F Your Hair, which will be screened at the Siskel Film Center as part of their Stranger Than Fiction documentary series. Friday, January 25th at 8.15, Saturday the 26th at 5 and Wednesday the 30th at 6. Now, I you'll go to any of those screenings and enjoy the film, but if you want to really enjoy it, uh, <laughs> Friday night there is a reception with free Five Rabbit beer. Uh, Mila and Andres will be there. Yes. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. Q&A after all the screenings, yes. but this one it'll be you guys and and then uh, them as well. Yeah, right. Friday is the big, uh, big world premiere. So there's Very a nice. reception beforehand starting at 7 o'clock in the, in the Siskel... Uh, theater, okay. uh, and that's where you can get some free Five Rabbit beer and meet the the subjects of the film. Uh, even though they don't like me calling them the subjects, the they're, subjects the, they're, the, they're the they're the the, the stars. stars. The stars. Well, they definitely yeah. are the stars. Uh, now we heard it. We heard in the the audio from the trailer about a lawsuit. Now, as you guys mentioned, we also heard uh, the former um, the former sales and marketing director Chompy say, you know, business is business. We were just selling beer, and that was. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, 
if the president and then candidate had not made those statements, none of this would have happened. They would have, you know, they might not have. Maybe they, maybe it would have changed with the, a lot of the wall conversation. Sure. But at that point, they would have. They were just selling beer, and for a small brewery, that's really all you want to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think that was the genesis of of this whole film and their decision ultimately. But but yeah, I mean, like you said, who knows what would have happened with right. the relationship given everything else that's that's been going on yeah. with this administration, but. But yeah, it certainly accelerated the timeline of them stopping doing business with Trump. That's that's for sure. So was there a lawsuit? No. No, there well, wasn't. There was and, and there wasn't a lawsuit against Macy's, and there wasn't a lawsuit against Serta, and there wasn't a lawsuit against anyone because, right. you know, he talks a big game. But ultimately, there's no there's no, uh, there's no no grounds for a lawsuit. Well, well, and the other thing, too, is I think it was it started to become power in numbers, Brian, and Brian because, you know, when Five Rabbit made this decision, it was literally the day after Trump made that speech. Right, so and they, they were they alone at that point. They were alone. They were out there on an island by themselves, you know, and this was the first company to really stop doing business with him and mm-hmm. taking that stand. Um, and then Macy's followed suit, and then Univision and NBC followed suit. So I think as soon as the the snowball started rolling, Trump, you know, yeah, what was he going to do at that everybody. time? Sue everyone? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I think I think Five Rabbit really took that first stand, and a lot of other bigger companies followed suit. And those bigger companies, while they still have something to lose, nowhere near as much as Five Rabbit, because if they let's to the nuts and bolts of it, they had brewed all this beer that they were supposed to sell to Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. Now they're sitting there. What are we going to do with this beer? What did they do with this beer? Yeah, so like you mentioned, Chompy uh, had a relationship with a lot of uh, local bars in Chicago because they were selling their beer to them on a regular basis. And so uh, Chompy and Andres made the decision to kind of try and sell the beer quietly, yeah. uh, maybe branded as as just a five rabbit golden ale maybe just sell it as a house beer for every bar that they can get it to um but they made the decision to call local bars in chicago and try and unload the kegs and they weren't sure if they would be successful or not and what they found was that not only uh were these bars willing to take this beer from them but they were enthusiastic about promoting the story behind this beer Right, and that's you talk to you talk to the guys at Hopleaf, mm-hmm. and you talk to the guys at the Fifty Fifty Restaurant Group, mm-hmm. and they all seemed like this was a no brainer because, in fact, the beer sold out that day within an hour, right, or a couple hours. They were done selling what they what they had, so all these bars took it, uh, and then that's when it when they started when these bar owners started telling the story, consumers started picking up on it, right? You know, along with the other news coverage. It really things went things went fast to the point where now they they're not really making that beer anymore, but they kind of are. What what right. brought about the rebranding of of that? It was the seriousness of the situation. Um, they they continued to brew the beer up until the election, and right. if he lost the election, it was over. It's all with. over, right? If he won, as Mila says in the film, it's more serious than we ever thought. And so they decided that instead of making this a beer about Trump and about what he said, let's make this about something larger. Right. Let's make this, instead of a reaction to his comments, let's make this a proactive movement. Mm -hmm. And so they changed the name of the beer to La Protesta. It is still the same beer. So if you want to try what it was like to drink that beer on election night, if you want (laughs) to relive that night, um, you can do that. But they changed the name of the beer to La Protesta, which is the protest in Spanish. And um, they do different 
different uh, different cans each time that they brew it. Uh, they find a local artist uh, and a local organization, or not so local, uh, uh, an organization to support with sales of that beer, right. so that they can reach a larger group than just people who m- might be anti-Trump. Yeah. Well, that's it. Makes sense, and a lot of the proceeds go to help those organizations. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing. So they're they're even though they were the first for the resistance, now they've dis- they've evolved it into something, as you say, proactive and positive. And we, we got to talk a little bit about on the other side of news. Um, we're going to talk about your upcoming projects. I want to talk to you about how it came to be that mm-hmm. F Your Hair is at the Cisco Center, but. Lest we think that this was just a smooth road after this decision by Five Rabbit, we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about what they what the backlash was, because as you can imagine, uh, there was a lot of backlash, uh, despite the the overwhelmingly positive support of the Chicago bars and and mm-hmm. other and customers. So we'll get into all of that. The guys from One City Film are here: uh, Jason Palavoy, Nick Jenkins, and Tommy uh, Teddy. T- sorry, Teddy. Teddy Wackles. <laughs> he's the director of photography. See, that's why Teddy sits there quietly because he's used to just being behind the camera shooting. <laughs> I'm the, qu- so I'm the quiet observer. Yeah, he is right. the quiet observer. Uh, is it uh, before we go to news? Real quick, Teddy. Since, sure. uh, is it hard? Do is it hard when you're filming? Do people want to come forward when they're are they comfortable when they're sitting for a, a film like this? I mean, Mila seemed comfortable. Everybody else seemed <laughs> you know, like it was not that they were uncomfortable, but that it might have taken a little bit of coaxing. Yeah. Is that up to is that up to the other guys to coax them and you just sit there? Or no, it's you... a little of both. There's nothing natural about having a lens in your face, no. couple lenses, lights, and you know, objectively two, three guys you've never met before <laughs> asking you all, all these deep questions yeah. and such. But it's just, yeah, it's just making them feel comfortable and you get that natural conversation vibe. And um, I think we did that successfully with most of our... Yeah. And you make uh, everyone look really good on camera too. I try they to make do, everyone they look do good. Look really good. Yeah. They, they get sweaty, I'll great. cover them up. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's making them forget that, that there's cameras like I'm trying to forget that there's, there's a microphones microphone. in yeah. my face right now. Well, you know? no, it's yeah, because it's the same thing. People go, oh, I don't know how to be on radio. Yeah. Well, you know how to talk, right? So right. just we'll sit down and talk. Sure, yeah, exactly. So we will continue the conversation all about F Your Hair, which is going to be screened. The big world premiere at the Cisco Film Center is next Friday, January 25th at 8 p.m. The reception with, oh, free five rabbit. You'll also get to meet uh, Mila and Andres and talk to the guys. There's a big Q&A after. Uh, that's at 8.15. Then it's a screening again on Saturday the 26th and Wednesday the 30th. Go to SiskelFilmCenter.org to get your tickets. One City Films is the guy's website more with guys on the other side but right now it is a 5 30 on 720 wg and that you gotta fight for your right to wow busted out some beastie boys oh man five rabbits are very not they didn't fight for their right to party they fought for their right to say listen you can't uh we don't agree with what you are saying, candidate Trump, and so we would rather not do business with you. Uh, and that is the subject of the film F Your Hair, the documentary that will be screened uh, as uh, part of the Cisco Film Center series Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, the world premiere of F Your Hair, which has a lovely uh, Spanish uh, series, Spanish title, which we cannot say. It is Friday, January 25th. The filming, the screening starts at 8.15. There is a beautiful reception starting at 7 o'clock with the filmmakers, Jason Polavoy, Nick Jenkins, and Teddy Wackles. They are they are in the studio with me, but also Andres Araya and uh, Mia Ramirez, 
who are the uh, partners, the creators, the owners of Five Rabbits for Vaser Real. They will be there. There will be a Q&A session afterwards. So uh, you can see it three different times, Friday the 25th, Saturday the 26th, or Wednesday the 30th. But if you're really uh, into beer, I, I hear Jason is a craft beer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. So yeah. he might. Uh, so he'll be there for that one. Come uh, go and enjoy some beer and then see this film, uh, which, again, I thank you for sending the screener it was it was really good and but as i mentioned before the news we've we've hit on all the highlights you know all right they they made this uh principal decision despite the fact that it could have sunk the brewery uh the support of local bar owners and uh, they picked it up oh we they bought the beer consumers drank the beer everything everything seemed to be going along despite the fact that it didn't seem that they Let's let's get this out of the way. This was not a publicity stunt by no, Five no, Rabbit. No, no. This was a principled decision. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Andres throughout the film seemed to be struggling with the attention. They didn't want this, right? They just wanted to make beer and go along with their lives. But situations arise where sometimes you have to make a stand. Right. Would that be an accurate portrayal of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now everything seems to be good. There's backlash, right? They, right. There has to be. What what kind of backlash did they face, and how how did they overcome it? Is it still, and is it still a couple years later, still happening? Yeah, there's a couple there's a couple portions of the film uh, where we highlight some of the backlash that they received, uh, specifically a voicemail that that was received at the brewery and an email as well. Um, and you know, it, it's it's the kind of thing where you have trouble putting it in the film because it is just it's so hateful it is so there's so much vitriol with which which these people are speaking and writing and you you have to wonder if they fully grasp the you know the reality of the situation right. for for people like Andres and Mila um and so it wasn't a love fest, but I will say that Chicago was very open to them and and really embraced them. And I think a lot of the and that's because they're the, here, right? right I right. mean, it's it's your favorite song. You're gonna you're gonna protect your own, right? As opposed to if this happened, I don't know, in Austin. Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, I think I think Chicago too has I think the second largest um, Mexican population in the mm -hmm. United States outside of Los Angeles. So, right. um, you know, they're they're in good company here in Chicago, but um, in in, in other places, this became a national news story. They're, they didn't get the benefit of, of a lot of that love. And so we highlight that through a couple different places in the film. Uh, and Andres and Mila both talk about how that kind of affected them, how that hate mail mm -hmm. affected them. And it's uh, it's a very difficult part of the film to get through. It, it is. There were a lot of a lot of slur, you know, slurs mm -hmm. directed at them. How did it affect... Uh, I, you, I interrupted you, Nick. You no, I was just going to kind of jump onto what Jason yeah. was saying there. And I mean, yeah, as you know, the... You know, you've seen the film, but you know that that voicemail and the the email that we feature in the film, they're very hateful and they're yeah. full of vitriol. And and I think that we struggled as documentary filmmakers in how to present it because you know we're telling a real story, something right. that truly happened. We're not doctoring up, you know, and, and sort of making this look worse than it is. So it was already bad. I think we just needed to figure out the right way to present it. And I how do I, how do you so how do you, amongst the three of you how do you decide? Okay, we've got this voicemail. We've we've got the emails. It happened. We're documentary filmmakers, so we have to. We're trying to tell the truth, you know. We're trying to tell this story. 
what kind of debate went into using that? Well, that voicemail, I mean, the voicemail that's in the film, that's the raw voicemail. Right. You know, that's the audio from what they actually left on the Five Rabbits of Aceria phone number. So that that is as raw as it gets. And then when it came to the, to the email, we were thinking about, you know, what's the right way to present it? Do we just want to throw some text up on screen and kind of have Andres talk over it or Mila talk over it? But but really, we needed, you know, we're, we're, we're making a movie, so we mm-hmm. needed some audio and visual components to go with it. So we had actually... Um, uh, voiceover artist, one of Jason's friends, uh, kind of read the letter, yeah. uh, read the email as if as if it was you know the person actually behind it speaking it. And I think um, you know the treatment was fair. Uh, we didn't uh, juice it up too much, but it was right. it was fair. And I would say you know what we thought that the person writing it would actually sound like. And it was it wasn't like you played six voicemails and read a ton of email. It was it was one of each. Yep. But you do have to. Th- because that that's had to be the concern. Yeah. The, the concern of Andres and Mila when they make this decision is, one, what's the backlash going to be on a big level? But two, what's it going to be here at home? Are we going to be able to keep selling beer? Are we going to be able to keep providing for our employees? What's, what's going to happen because, you know, because of our decision? Yeah. And that, that weighs on all bosses. But this, this suddenly was not just... A, a, an in, in-house decision. This was a decision that now had national attention. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, Andres and, and Mila, we didn't include it in the film, but uh, in the interviews, they kind of talk about some of the customers that have come in. And if you go to Five Rabbit Brewery in, in uh, the southwest side of Chicago, you know, they have a nice giant wall yeah. of Bullies Aren't Leaders, kind of their Chinga Tupelo premiere poster. And they've had people, customers come in and want to try their beer, and they turn around, they see this wall of posters, and they'll kind of immediately scoff at them and then walk out, right? Because they're offended yeah. that... You know, they, they might not know the full backstory of, sure. of Chinga Tupelo and, and Five Rabbit. And they walk in and they see this and they're like, this place isn't for me. I'm done. I'm out. So, you know, even today, um, three and a half plus years later, they're still feeling some of the, the really? side effects of, of this decision. Is it uh, because you, you mentioned or I read in one of the articles, uh, some of the a lot of these letters and things were coming from far away where right. Five Rabbits was not even distributed. Right. But, you know, the worry is here. So is it just sales or are people, like you said, people will come in and they'll see the posters and then they'll, they'll leave. But overall, overall, it's, is this something that's, because they don't want to be known for this. You know, this is a chapter of their story, but this, they don't want this to be their whole story. So have they gone on, things are more positive than negative at this point, or are they? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think the takeaway from the film is that this was they turned something horrible and negative into something positive and you know regardless of how much promotion they got or didn't get or chose to get or chose not to get they come out uh with something greater than themselves something greater than their initial and their initial beer for the Trump Tower, and even something greater than what their beer uh, became. This is a positive story, yeah. you know, when all is said and done. Very good. All right, so how, now you guys make this film, you've got it. How do you end up at the Siskel Film Center? This is a very great, exciting, very exciting story. Um, so if there are any filmmakers listening right now, uh, we made a f- just under a 40-minute film. And so any filmmakers will probably be saying, what the hell are you going to do with a 40-minute film? Right? Is that is that uh, long? <laughs> for, for documentaries, uh, is that long? Technically, that it's short? a short, but it's not it's short a, by right. okay. objective means. Because so, so, I expected, when I, when I started to watch it, I was like, oh, this is going to be like an hour, 20. I was like, oh, 40 minutes, that's, you know. 
It seems like a nice length. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice length, and I think we do you know we do the story justice in a limited amount of time that we have. But but the problem is, Brian, it's um it's forty minutes, and so most film festivals don't want to program a forty minute short, right? Oh, because it, okay. It takes up so much time in the broader film festival yeah. world. They it, can program four short ten minute films in the amount of time oh, that so they, they program wa- one of ours. I so. see. So they yeah. want them the film festivals for is it is that just a documentary thing? No, that's or is that that's that's, 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 uh, that's narratives and, and documentaries. But um, you know it, it so it's a it's a challenge in the film festival front, but it actually presents an opportunity because when we're going to theaters, independent theaters like the Gene Siskel, who are just fantastic when it comes to giving you know emerging artists yeah. and new filmmakers a voice, um, you know we we partnered with uh, uh, this amazing film production company here in Chicago, Cartemquin Films. Okay. Um, you know they've done Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, you name it. You know nice. in terms of Chicago documentaries, Cartemquin's probably behind it. Um, they just put out a a uh, Chicago protest documentary called Sixty Three Boycott. Yes, it's about the nineteen sixty three uh, protests, student led protests against segregation in Chicago public schools. Okay, it was actually just uh, shortlisted for an Oscar. Oh wow, um, very it's nice. A, it's a great film, and you know we worked with them to put together this double bill uh, at the Gene Siskel, and we said you know we both have films. Uh, that have to do with Chicago protests, right? Yeah. It's, it's both are protest yeah, themes, m- different decades, but but they kind of have the same theme. Yeah. So we approached the programmers at Gene Siskel, and we said we'd love to do a double bill event with you know Cartemquin and One City Films, and um, they, you know they bid it, they bid on nice. it, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be a fantastic event. And uh, so all the Q and A's you mentioned, uh, we'll also are, have we'll, people from we'll, correct from sixty three boycott. Um, and uh, you know, it's. I think it's going to be a really good, good uh, discussion around protests in Chicago, the history of protests, the mechanics of protest, you know, then and now. And um, overall, I'm I'm really happy that we're able to do this double bill event with with such a you know a storied film production company like Cartemquin. That's terrific. Uh, well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about being ind- independent documentary filmmakers and what you guys are working on next. OneCityFilms.com is the website. You can go and get all the information about what the guys are working on and uh, more about F Your Hair, which again will be screened. The big world premiere screening is Friday, January 25th at 8:15 at the Siskel Film Center, siskelfilmcenter.org. There's a reception at 7 o'clock. There will be five rabbit beers there. There will be the guys there. There will be uh, Andres and Mila will, Mila will be there. Uh, and then a big Q&A with uh, everybody and the folks from 63 Boycott. Mm-hmm. All of that after, after the screening. All right, let's do this. Then there's more. It's WGN. how you're picking these bumps, uh, Ariel, but uh, they're unbelievably entertaining. Uh, Brian Noonan, we're here till 6.15, then it's Northwestern Basketball against the Wolverines in Michigan. Jason Polavoy and Nick Jenkins and Teddy Wachholz are in the studio with me. Together, they are the creative minds between One City Films. Uh, they are the men who put together the film uh, F Your Hair, which will be at the Siskel Film Center. What is uh? What do you guys focus on at One City Films? Uh, what kind of what kind of subjects are you looking for for your uh, for your projects? Uh, well, anyone who's deeply compelling and interesting, I think that's, that's <laughs> okay. a start. Uh, and, your and, story and, is fascinating. And, yeah, and Mila and Andres fit that bill to a T. That's <laughs> for, for sure. sure. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, we do a mix of uh, commercial and documentary work. So we do okay. we do some commercial and corporate uh, video production, and um, you know we've we we love doing videos for nonprofits here in Chicago. We've done a we've done a couple thus far, and um, on the documentary side, we have a feature length uh, film in production right now. Really? It's about uh, my block, my hood, my city. I see the and, I see the yeah, shirts and yeah, the hats. Well, oh, yeah. Just well, kind of always have hoodies on us well, every day. Well represented, as, Teddy is a you good. You're a good billboard, Teddy. <laughs> I think I last time we were quiet, here, you, but you you exude the message. Just let the shirt do the talk. I think last time you were here. <laughs> It was the middle of the night, and you were going. You were yeah. like heading out. Were you not here because you were setting something? No, you were here. No, we were here. We just we did you, our yeah, session you had here, to and go then we and went down to Chatham at what was it four a.m. Uh, we, we got to Yeah, yeah which didn't Wandale, seem right, like yeah. didn't seem like a wise move. I'm yeah. glad to see you survived because I remember commenting that was there had just been some shootings there. Like there's always shootings there. But yeah, there that's likely. But some... there's good people down there. Oh, so. Of course, um, well, but that was tough. That was actually the the kids we were following were going to to college, so they right. packed up yeah. at the crack of dawn to go down to South Carolina for their first couple of weeks of college, and we wanted to get them literally leaving Chicago. You know, so this is all the same the feature you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. pretty special. still in production. Yeah. We're kind of working on it. Uh, We've as been working much as we can, yeah. For two years now, it follows Jamal Cole, who you may have heard of because he's all over the news now. Um, he was just named one of the Chicagoans of the Year by Chicago Magazine. Yes. Um, it follows him and his program, My Black, My Head, My City, which is a uh, an after-school program uh, for kids in underrepresented neighborhoods, um, under-resourced neighborhoods. And uh, yeah, so we we followed three uh, three students through their senior year of high school right. in his program, and so the twins that we followed were headed down to South Carolina. So really, yeah, we went to we went to say goodbye and and get their departure. So and how I would imagine it had to be very uplifting. These guys getting to to head off to college. Oh yeah, 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 was, and they're, they're that's an understatement. It their was, their it was grandma cool and their and their oh, aunt man. was there, and and uh, yeah, their little cousins and happy tears, sad tears, and. Mm-hmm. Some that I'm going to speak for all three of us, but that we kind of take for granted, you know, growing up. All right, I'll finish. Sure. I'll graduate junior high, then I'll go to high school, then I'll go to college and, you know, be an adult. But it's not it's not a lock for everybody. And yeah. so, um, you know, a lot of these kids, they're the first in their families to even get accepted oh, into college, let mm-hmm. alone go and do it and take that big step. Uh, so it was really, you know, as if we're part of the family, you know, we spent some <laughs> well, time listen. with them. and But, you know, it, it was really... Well, that, I mean, little proud. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know. It's when you're, you know, when you're filming so much with some of these these students and in, in these families, it's like you almost become part of the family. Oh, sure. Like it's an honor just to, for them to let you in and put yeah, a camera yeah. on their lives. So, yeah, to see them go away to school, that was that was special. And then to talk to the the families afterwards, that was even more. Special. Is that is that the end, or are do you are you going to follow them, like now that they're at school, are you going to check in with them, or how? Or was we're, that the the final shot of the scene of the film? We're continuing to follow to follow Jamal and his life here in Chicago, okay. and continuing with the program. And we'll probably do a check in with them at some point soon, as sort of an addendum to the film. Um, but as far as their role in in the film, that's it. They they graduated. They made it. So, okay. Yeah. So the 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 my block, my hood, my city. You know, I have that found progr- in my travels. What's going on there? All the best. What happened there? How that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not touching anything. I don't know how that Max Headroom. Yeah, that's very weird. We're, we've just been hijacked. Yeah. Maybe it's somebody from the Trump organization. Yeah. They didn't uh, like the film. They never know. Uh, so, all right, you mentioned it's a privilege for you to be able to go into these people's homes. Mm-hmm. As filmmakers, your job is to turn the camera. Teddy turns the camera on. You, you watch all that's going on. Have there been situations or have somebody come to you and said, listen, I I really don't want this in the film. You know, you caught something that happened because we're a real family doing what we do, but I don't want it in the film. Is 
is that an ethical dilemma then for you guys because this is we're supposed to show things warts and all or do you say all right for the good of it you know this this little piece of information one isn't going to impact the film but it could really impact these people's lives how do you walk that line i think i mean we all have we're all very sort of um you know, open-minded when it comes to those suggestions, and I think that we consider ourselves journalists first and foremost to yeah. a, to a certain degree. So yeah, I mean, I I hear you, but there are definitely some things that that have happened, Jason. I don't know if you want to talk about any of them, but but you know, it, we put a lens on you know a family or a situation, and it's like maybe this doesn't actually need to be in the story. It's not just okay. that they don't want it there, but it doesn't add anything to the story. Right. You know what I mean? So It'd it's just not be an sensational. Integral part. Yeah, so, yeah, it wouldn't. It, you know, we could use it to tell the story, but it doesn't need to be there. Okay. It's not It's not an important, vital part of the story. It's not so. going to change the outcome one way or another. The, right. the, the relationship between a filmmaker and their subject or a journalist and their subject or, or, is a, it's a very delicate, um, sensitive relationship, and there's a lot of trust that that comes both ways, but but really more so that if the subject towards the filmmaker, and so you constantly have to be thinking about: uh, is this in the best interest of the subject, and is this in the best interest interest of the film? And weighing those things against each other is a is a it's a struggle. Mm. It, it is absolutely. I think what's great about uh, you know the film with with Jamal is that he has opened up his life to us for the last two years. Kind of no strings attached. Okay. Um, and and so you know we do have some we've had some issues here and there, but I mean really it's he he's been so open with us and he wants to see he wants people to see how this is happening, why it's happening, and why he is struggling to make it happen. Very yeah. nice. Well, congratulations on on that. Good luck with uh, finishing that up. Congratulations on F Your Hair, which is now going to make its world premiere at the Gene Siskel Film Center on Friday, January twenty fifth. The screening starts at 8.15. There is a reception at 7 o'clock. Uh, there will be a Five Rabbit beer there. The guys will be there. The owner of, owners of Five Rabbit will be there. There's Q&As after all of the screenings. Uh, January 25th, January 26th, January 30th. Go to siskelfilmcenter.org to get your tickets for that. Go to onecityfilms.com to see uh, all about the projects that the guys are working on. Again, congratulations. It's good to Thank see you. you again. Thanks, Brian. And Thanks, Brian. Uh, all the best with, uh, with everything coming up. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I wish you could see all the uh, craziness that is going on here in the studio. Thanks again to the guys from One City Films. Uh, Roger, good to see you. I guess there there was a little issue with the commercials during the news. Uh, computers are great until they're not. Exactly. And then once the system oh, yeah. goes down, there's nothing you can do except kind of roll with it, which is what... Uh, Ariel and uh, our uh, fantastic engineer Krista are doing now. They're trying to figure out. All right, how are we? How are we going to run these commercials? Because uh, people paid and they want to. Yeah, they want their sure. commercials to run. Sure, I don't blame them. Uh, you did mention, and I will mention this again. We're here for uh, about another f- nine minutes because uh, Northwestern basketball is coming up. Dave Ennett is going to have your call mm-hmm. at uh, six fifteen. He's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a day. Well, he's not taking on the Wolverines. No. I'd like to see that Dave playing <laughs> five on one against. Uh, Against the Michigan Wolverines, He'd Dave whoop just them. well. He listen. He's in good shape. Yes, that, he that is. Dave Ennett, He eats a lot of kale. Yes, it must be some sort of superfood because he is in very good shape. Helps his voice too. He's good on the call. So wait, 
I gotta. I have to chastise you for a moment because you were you were in this uh, weird social media vague book announcement deal. Oh, something big is coming, and it has to do with Dave Ennett, right? Was yeah, that was that yeah. the big announcement that, that Dave is Dave is grand marshalling the parade that you uh, do on the Fourth of July? In, yes, in Skokie, he is. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Yeah. So Dave is the grand marshal mm-hmm. because you were you were playing that game. Oh, I've got a big announcement coming up pretty I, soon. There's going to be a huge announcement, getting people all uh, all worried. Are you leaving? Are you dying? Are you going to buy a horse? There was a lot of questions yeah. about what was uh, what was actually happening with you. Well, I bow to the master, sir. Which is you are the master of what of the teas. Oh, you know, and it's I all have, about the teas. I have learned at your feet for the last thirteen years. Is that right? Yes, I have, sir. <laughs> Are you Ed McMahon all of a sudden? Correct, sir. You are you correct. Are correct sir. You are correct, sir. Your tease is fantastic. Just say it on the air, Ariel. What do you got? Uh, Ariel, there's a big... Hold on, Roger. We have to got do a, a minute problem. and a half of ads that I that somehow got messed up, so if you don't mind... All right. Hang on, Roger. We yeah. gotta, we gotta, are you going to fire them? Do you have them? I don't. Who's going to fire them? Krista. Krista's going to fire them. All right, Krista, go ahead. <laughs> hmm. I just lost the, uh, oh, I know why I lost the screen in front of me, because that's the computer system that's screwing up. Hi, folks. Welcome back. Roger, we were in the middle of talking about something. Uh, uh, the big Dave team. Oh, Dave Ennett. Yeah, All right, so that's it. So you're Teasing. okay. Yeah. That's yeah. very exciting. That's not till 4th of July, correct? 4th of July. Uh, Dave right. Ennett is our Grand Marshal. Um, uh, he is a big, as you know, NU person. I've and heard of that. He's so Mr. Cat, as Mr. we like Cat. to call him. Mr. Cat. He has property named after him. That's Dave how, has, Dave how big. has property? Well, the, Named the, after him? Where? The broadcast booth over at the oh, stadium. Oh, that's right. Yes, I forgot. Yeah. All right. And so the head of the parade, the committee that I serve on, uh, is also, he's a grad of NU, and he's a real big NU supporter. And so that's how he got to know Dave over the years. Okay. And he said, how would you like to you know, lead the parade? And uh, we had to wait for a while to, you know, Dave's got a busy schedule. You know, sure. all plus, year long. Plus, he's Dave Ennett. He doesn't have to answer right away. Yeah, true. He, he, true. You got you to yeah. build the suspense. Yes. Am I gonna Am I gonna come and do the parade, or am I not? Mm. Not that, and not that it's not a great parade. Right. Not that right. it's not. You know, not that it's not worthy of a Dave Ennett. But uh, you know, yeah. you got to play hard to get. And, that's and that's part of the deal. He did that very well. I know. And yeah. now he's going to do it, and everybody's going to be very and, very. Yeah, happy. we're excited. And everybody's uh, excited. This is my fourth year. Being the master of ceremonies. Wow. So uh, I am situated. Um, I do get to ride in the parade, though, at the very beginning. Actually, oh, do you this year? Well, it, it's it's way before the beginning Are of the parade. Are you going to get a new crazy uh, suit? No, no, Some no. I'm getting the same suit. Okay. Same suit. All right. A same suit. Uh, you know, that's my signature. Oh, sure. You got yeah. Well, you got to have a signature look. Yeah. If you're a, if you're a grand marshal. And, and mine, is, the parade. mine is frumpy. That's sure. my signature look. Listen, you and me both. I know. Uh, I, I'm so tired of seeing these, and I and I fell victim to it. The age, what? how hard has age affected you oh, yeah. on Facebook? Uh, and, From your first picture on Facebook right, your to the first most profile recent profile picture yeah. to your most recent profile picture, and yeah. and usually I don't I don't know what happened to me. There was a moment of weakness yesterday. You gave morning. in. I gave in yesterday morning. I don't know why. I was you know why? Because uh. I was sitting. Yesterday was the day we disassembled Christmas. Everything's gone. Oh. And so I was having one last moment sitting. Everybody was, everybody, Debbie was asleep. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in with the dogs, drinking a cup of coffee. It's quiet. I'm looking at the tree going, oh, in mere hours you'll be gone. And who Uh knows what next year has. And and I I don't know what it was, but I fell victim to it. And I did the the two pictures. And uh, it's hard looking back sometimes. It is. I would much rather live in the, living in the past, sometimes it's fun to live in the past. 
especially if you had a nice past. But if uh, it's better to live in the present and hope for, and hope for the future than to look back. Unless you're Jethro Tone. Wow. I, that is a reference I did not get. I'm not a big Tull fan. Oh, really? Living in the past. I'm thick as a brick. Oh, there you go. You're, you're the newer album. You, that yeah. was the before, and Thick as a Brick is you now. Okay, oh, gotcha. Yeah. No, Thick as a Brick was the first profile picture. Thick as a Brick. Oh, uh, really? Oh, that's right. Giant as a house. I was like, holy cow. That's, that's what I mean. You pull up those pictures, you go, holy yeah. cow. I'm surprised my giant head fit in the frame of a picture. Seriously, was, when you pulled that up and you did that yesterday, when yeah. you went looking for that first Facebook picture, did yeah. you kind of do a little double take when you looked at it again? No, I remember how I looked. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I'm I'm painfully aware of uh, I'm painfully aware of how I look now, uh-huh. and I'm painfully aware of how I look then. Um, there's not a lot of surprise to me. When <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I'm walking by the mirror and go, "Hey, look at that guy. Who is that sexy man? He's the most." <laughs> interesting man in the world i go oh boy no that's uh you just wander by and you're like okay that's enough of that uh, uh let's move on so yeah I, now we're seeing everybody but you didn't play you you put up I, cartoons I, I, well no i did one yesterday did you do one yesterday i did one yesterday it was um it was me like at about three years old yeah. which is actually one of my newer picks i pulled off of some video family was video that your first that was not your first profile picture no when you were because three. i actually i played right i went back you can now you can go back to whatever post in any year that you made. And I look back at my first entries onto Facebook, and I'm looking, I don't have any pictures. Where the heck is my first picture? And they were of other things, like my garden, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you know, I'm, like, right. I'm not putting Frank up there. Yeah, that's, that's not. Oh, man, that you, you know. have aged horribly. <laughs> well, no, I, I take that back. If you were Frank Sinatra back then and you were still alive now, you, you did better than Frank. Yeah, that's true. So that's always good. <laughs> you know. So I picked one when I was really young. Right. And then, what did I, I forgot what the latest one i put up i can't remember now but all i know but is then I, today not... i did a second one yeah. and so then was fred flintstone and now is george jetson yeah See, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I will say i'm not falling victim to this stuff again you got okay. me once facebook yeah i'm not playing your games i'm not uh, i'm not well one i already don't take those quizzes but i'm not yeah. doing any of this anymore yeah. and uh None of that. So I'm I'm going to drive home the uh, bird box challenge. That's how I'm. That's no, how I'm going to get home. No, no, yeah, I'm going to try no. to come out of the uh, parking garage bird box. And I'm going to bird box the whole thing. I'll let you know how it goes next week when we are back. Uh, thank you for listening and being part of the show. Thanks to all the great guests. Ariel, thanks for coming in. I know people were worried that Cody's not coming back. Uh, listen, if he doesn't, you got the gig. I'm uh, happy to have you here. He does uh, does good work. So. Uh, don't feel don't feel neglected. All right, we will talk to you again next week. Northwestern basketball coming your way. Dave Ennett is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So let's go there now on WGN.